This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast, episode 188. We are a podcast not only dedicated to talking about manga as a medium, but as an industry. I'm Colton. And I'm Lamrayasha. And today it is once again time to reflect upon the previous year of manga. It is time for our annual Best of the Year episode, where we reflect on the previous year of manga and look back at all our favorite things to read during the year and share with you all what we enjoy so much about this medium we all love. Mm-hmm, for sure. I definitely really enjoy doing these podcasts every year. It's uh, it's just nice to kind of go over uh, some of the standout moments in manga, both as a medium and as an industry, as <laughs> as the tagline uh, suggests. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just fun. And... Uh, We're going to try to do our best to see if we can make sure this podcast is shorter than our last one from last year. But I I might be jinxing us, but we'll we'll see. We actually did. uh, We really tried to do our best to try to, like, really shorten the amount of picks we usually have. So this will be an interesting experiment. Indeed. I think no matter the length, there's going to be a lot of fun things to talk about, and I just hope our listeners will enjoy listening, as we have done in years past doing these episodes, just going all in and comprehensively (laughs) covering every facet of what we enjoyed about manga in the previous year. And in 2021, it was certainly a stuffed year full of manga favorites. But yeah, I think it's about time to just get into our categories. And before we even get into that, uh, obviously, big spoiler warning for basically everything we're going to talk about. If we happen to bring up a series that you're not caught up on and you haven't had the chance to catch up on yet, um, just kind of skip ahead. Uh, We'll have time codes in the uh, episode description for this episode of the podcast, uh, just so you know kind of like where to skip around. Uh, so just 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 a catch all spoiler warning there right at the top of the show. We don't want to accidentally spoil anybody because we are going to no no holds barred as as it's always is on uh, Manga Maverick. So that's your final warning. Yeah, we've never been a particularly spoiler shy podcast, and certainly we will not be avoiding them this year because it's kind of essential to talking about a lot of the series in our superlative categories. But uh, the the first category, first couple categories we have on here, you don't have to worry too much about. Uh, and Lum, I guess, do you want to introduce our first one? Yes, our first category, as we often do, and after we used to do, we would always begin the show covering news. And in years since, we have since split news and discussion episodes into separate episodes. But of course, we started off as a news podcast, and we are of course starting off discussing. What are favorite or what we consider to be the most important stories of the manga industry were in 2021? Mm-hmm. And uh, I mean, I don't know. There, I, I feel like so much happened. Like, uh, like when when we have to get ready for these podcasts, it does kind of force me to like have to kind of go back through our archive and our podcast feeds and kind of read through everything and see like, oh, man, what do we cover for this year? And like. There's some things I came across where I'm just like, oh, that happened this year? It's been that long since that happened? Like, man, every every year, you know, even like pre-pandemic just kind of feels like, man, things just kind of feel like they really kind of meld together after a certain point, uh, the older you get. So that's a thing. But um, Lum, do you actually want to go first? I'm actually really curious about what your picks are. Admittedly, my picks 
are less to do with manga so much as the anime manga industry as a whole. I would say the biggest piece of news, the Hellfro's over biggest surprise type news. Okay. That I felt was worth acknowledging mentioning was the agreement that Big West and Harmony Gold have come to to permit the distribution of the original Macross in North America. Finally, they've kind of gotten over their chips on their shoulder, their desire to have control over what comes out over here and monopolize just the Macross franchise as, as like Robotech. And Harmony Gold's case. But no, the original Macross, they have agreed to allow the distribution of. They've agreed to allow the distribution of a lot of entries in the Macross franchise. Which I think is a large part what allowed the Macross Plus screening to happen in late December. And it is a very promising, encouraging trend for more of the franchise to be more readily and legally available. Which is really good and really great considering how much of a classic important mecha franchise it is. And how many iconic entries really should be more easily available and legally available to watch. And hopefully we will see more availability come to pass much like that Macross Plus screening. So I thought that was a pretty big deal in terms of the industry. And of course, another huge industry shakeup was Sony's purchase of Crunchyroll. And so now they own both Crunchyroll and Funimation. They basically... for be- <laughs> Well, I feel perhaps worse, have a monopoly on anime licensing, particularly for simulcasts. And it's a huge change up for the industry that I'm curious to see how things will be. But certainly it is a little bit amusing to see Crunchyroll and Funimation once again be corporate partners after, you know, having a partnership, then dissolving it after Crunchyroll is bought by Warner. And now, once again, that they're both owned by Sony, they are once again united. And that was a huge industry piece of news, a huge shakeup that there are ramifications of which we are still going to have to see. And there have been certainly a lot of purchases of previously independent or smaller companies by larger conglomerates in the manga world that have been happening recently, but a lot of those are like just this year type pieces or just late class year type pieces that I could probably mention later. But yeah, I mean, I feel like this is one of the bigger ones for the industry as a whole. So those like were the two big industry like news stories that really stuck with me. I was like, okay, th- these are like the biggest news of the year. Besides, of course, as just an honorable mention, Demon Slayer becoming the highest grossing film of all time in Japan. Oh yeah, blowing away Spirited Away by a good cool hundred mil in the international box office. I mean, the highest grossing film of the year 2020, the first time a non-Hollywood film has been the highest grossing film of the year. And of course, it's set many box office records during its North American theatrical debut as well. So yeah, those are the stories that still stick in my mind as well. Those were big deals. Mm-hmm. I don't have any of those for my picks personally, but I do agree that uh Especially a lot of the, um, you know, a lot of these bigger companies, you know, basically acquiring all of the anime licensors that we know and love. And a a lot more that we haven't even really had the chance to report on that have happened since the last time we recorded news that I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll talk about in the future. Um, 
I don't know. It, it, it just really seems like a lot of these bigger companies, they see the dollar signs. They see the anime is very lucrative at this point. Yeah, it, these, it, those are like the biggest stories in terms of like change the landscape of the industry and seeing like how that is going to affect just how the market and how the distribution of anime and now manga as well, but so many manga publishers being absorbed into larger conglomerates, how that's going to pan out. So it's going to be something we're going to have to follow and see where things lead. Before you head into your picks, I do want to also acknowledge that, you know, we had a lot of incredibly talented, important people pass away in the previous year. Oh, yeah. And I left those off my list just to focus on, like, industry stories. But I do want to acknowledge that so many incredibly talented people, you know, we it, for a long time, there was just a string of episodes where we had a in-memoriam beginning every episode because yeah we just lost a lot of talented incredible people who have made media that have uh, really affected us and it was very heartbreaking to lose many incredible people this year and i just want to just acknowledge some of the ones that meant a lot to me shinsuke kikuchi joji yanami akira ito chris ayers keiko nobomoto and of course kentaro miura uh kentaro miura's passing of course was it sent shockwaves in the manga community. So many posts and tributes and reflections on what his work in Berserk meant. Uh, the wall of tributes to him at NYC was a really touching monument that I was glad to also leave a message behind in. But all these people, you know, we had talked in previous episodes during our memoriams for them. Uh, but they really did make such incredible work and, you know, it shaped us as fans in a lot of way you know mm -hmm. they, they made work that you know defined whatever series they worked on a lot of you know these creators worked on dragon Ball in particular uh and were so much an integral part of them but yeah it's just uh, we lost a lot of really incredible talented people and a lot of them so young too which just made it even more tragic so i just did want to take a moment to acknowledge and pay respect to those we lost last year mm-hmm uh, actually, that can kind of transition into my picks because uh, one of the things I did want to mention in particular, uh, you know, were some of the people that passed away over the past year, um, Kintaro Miura in particular. I think when I initially saw the news that he had passed that, you know, that, that actually really had me in like a huge funk for like the rest of that night that we got that news reported. Like, you know, because like, Admittedly, I hadn't I hadn't really like read Berserk in a while. I, I do need to like get back to it at some point and actually, I guess, finish it up at this point. And one one day we do have to do a, uh, an episode on Berserk at some point. I think that's coming eventually. But yeah, I don't know. It was just one of those things where it's like you, you don't really know what you have until it's gone kind of things where it's like, oh, wow, I had I mean, I knew Berserk was obviously a very well beloved series and like how popular it was and how influential it was. But I guess just like not to the scale it was because like, I, I feel like and you know, this is to not say like, you know, one person's death is more meaningful than the other per se. But it did feel like so many people came out of the woodwork to really pay the respects to Mior in particular. Like, it was just kind of overwhelming how many people were, like, so deeply touched by his loss. And it, w it was just really amazing to see. Like, even, like, organizations like NPR did their own pieces on Miura. And, like, Miura, I think, is one of the few, like, manga creators that has, like, such a real reach outside of, like, even just the manga community that, like, even people who aren't into manga 
necessarily still love his work. Like, I think that really says something about, like, the quality of his work and, like, how many people really loved it, you know? And, you know, again, Kentaro Miura's loss, I think, is going to be felt in the community and in just the manga industry for a long time to come, uh, as well as a Takao Saito. You know, we lost him this uh, this past year. That was one that, uh, you know, probably didn't hit as many people as, as it did with Miura, but he was still like a really huge creator and obviously was uh, one of the few that was still doing manga even in his old age. Uh, and Gogo 13, as per his wishes, is still going to be continuing, you know. Gogo 13, you know, he's one of the few characters that's going to be around for a very long time, uh, which I think is the mark of a really good character personally. Yeah. No, a lot of incredibly talented, trailblazing people in the industry uh, who have left me on incredible legacy and inspired so many. My other pick to kind of get back to more uplifting news is the fact that a lot of big series slash like big authors uh, that were originally hesitant on this are kind of switching over to digital now. Uh, I mean, earlier in the year... We got that big news that uh, George Morikawa basically allowed for Hachibe no Ippo to be all available digitally in Japan, which was pretty cool, uh, as well as, uh, uh, I mean, one series. But Takahiko Inoue obviously is seemingly okay with having real be published digitally, which is cool, which also resulted in uh, us getting that digitally in English, which is really cool. Now more people have access to that. Hopefully we can get some of his other stuff digitally if he's okay with it, but we'll just kind of have to see. That's It's still a good first step. Uh, and obviously just recently, you know, Naoki Urasawa himself announced that uh, basically all of his work is going to be available digital too. And hey, who knows? Uh, we, I mean, out of, out of these three creatives, I think we have the best chance of getting his stuff available digitally in English properly, hopefully. But yeah, again, a lot of authors that originally were very hesitant about having their stuff available in English. And I guess uh, we we learned with uh, Morikawa in particular, and I think with uh, Urasawa too, basically the reason they decided to have their works available digitally was because of, you know, the pandemic and, you know, having that sort of like accessibility for people who want to read their works, I think is important. I think uh, they see the value in that, which is why I think uh, they decided, yeah, you know, I might not understand digital entirely uh especially in the case of like maybe like george morikawa who i'm i'm pretty sure like people at kodansha had to try to explain him like the pros and cons of it and even if he doesn't like completely understand it you know i'm appreciative that you know they're making their works just that more accessible i think that's very important absolutely it is a very encouraging trend and hopefully will allow works by a lot of these creators you know that are so really good but like you know collecting them in print or just licensing them for print is so difficult it allows them their work to get spread like legally and be enjoyed by a lot more people and i think that will be great because a lot of their stories are so good and and people should have a way to read them digitally and just you know especially in the current times of like the print manga shortage uh, like i think that's just a great choice to make yeah hopefully this leads to more classic works contemporary works to be available in digital at some point uh the, the the more of this stuff we have available I guess as available as possible, the better. 
I think those were about it for my picks. Th- th- those were those were like the most important news pieces to me. You know, unfortunately, you know, as we were mentioning with people like Miura and Saito before, you know, a-, a lot of news that unfortunately was very sad and very heartbreaking. But also, I think a lot of news that's very uplifting and, uh, you know, signals a lot of good change for the accessibility of certain titles, which is nice. Absolutely. Um, but I think we should move on to our favorite new North American manga licenses of 2021. Uh, and uh, for this in particular, we're trying to stick to our, I guess, our five picks maximum. So, uh, Lum, if you want to go ahead and start first. Oh, sure. So, in no particular order, I will start off by saying, you know, of course, I'm well known as a big Rumiko Takahashi fan. So it's been a great time being a Rumiko Takahashi fan, considering all the works that have been coming out from her multiple series a year have been republished, or in the case of Mao, published for the first time. And we got a new short story collection from her that is going to become the print next year. And I've been able to preview that a little, and I'm really excited for that. But what I'm even more excited for is actually a spinoff to a series created by her, but... That has a spinoff that, uh, you know, was not very, you know, what I was looking for in Yashihime. Of course, I'm a big fan of Inuyasha. Yashihime, the show, did not pan out like I'd hoped. But I am still incredibly excited for Takashishina's Yashihime manga. Because everything that I have heard about it and seen about it is so good, so promising, and feels like the take on the story that I wanted. And more than that, Takashi Shina as a creator has never had their works licensed and published over here before. But I think it's great that this series will be, because he is clearly like a big Rumiko Takashi fan, and clearly put a lot of love. And his designs for the central characters are like so good in his manga adaptation of Yashihime. And so, yeah, I am very excited to read his take on Yajihime and read a different interpretation of the story that, by all accounts, seems like it's going to be a lot better and more enjoyable. And yeah, I'm just really excited for that on two fronts, both to have like a new take on Yajihime that I will probably hopefully like better and also just to have one of Takashishina's manga available over here since we never got Ghost Sweeper, Mikami, or Setai Kenan Children. So that's incredibly exciting. And I'm also incredibly excited for, of course, you know, one thing that was so nice in recent years is that we're getting more trans stories, manga about trans characters, which is really an encouraging thing to see. But as we had also talked about before, we are still bereft and still wanting for more trans mask, trans male representation, stories about trans male characters. And so I'm incredibly excited for To Strip the Flesh, a short story collection about a trans boy that has so much like resonant, powerful imagery about their story of like reconciling their gender and also combine that with their story of like being a hunter that is like so interesting. And there was just so much great visuals that I just that were shared in the wake of the licensing announcement that were just like so powerful. And I know I saw like resonate with a lot of people. And it's just very inciting. And this is a series that friend of the show Ace, you know, mentioned to us a while back when it was originally being published on Jump Plus. And it's so exciting that this is licensed and this is going to come out next summer. And the art looks fantastic. The premise of the story is fantastic. I am so excited to read it. 
Another encouraging trend that we've been having is that we are getting more works by classic authors, more works by, you know, greats of the medium, and especially more classic shoujo works and shoujo specialists. None more so than Wodo Hagio, who, you know, has had a lot of her works published in recent years. And finally, one of her biggest titles is getting republished and going to be, like, fully published with, like, even more that was published before when the series was originally translated in the 90s. And that's They Were 11 that Demp is putting out, and I know they are going... Uh, through a bit of a, a struggle in, in some senses of like licensing this because of the materials they're working with, but I am very excited for their release and it coming out and like to have like this comprehensive newly translated edition of Day Were Eleven to read. And yeah, it's a classic manga that I have wanted to check out for the longest time. And of course, by an author whose works I am always eager to read more of. So I'm very, very excited for that. Speaking of authors whose works I'm very, very excited for, you know, Yuki Kamatani, artist, creator of Guardians of Dusk, one of my favorites. I'm so glad to see more of their works getting licensed, including Shonen Note, a series that I have heard so many great things about, especially from people who are like super familiar, super into Kamatani stuff. Like it is a series that deals with puberty and Gender identity in also very powerful resident ways, and I am very excited to read this as well. I was also excited to read Hira Et, which was supposed to come out digitally, but then just suddenly got taken down on the day it came out. And so only those who have pre-ordered it got it, so I don't know what's going on with that. It was such a strange thing. It was like, they never announced it officially and they listed it early. So maybe it was just a mistake on Kadansha's part that they listed early. But hopefully, if Herod really is been licensed by Kadansha, they are going to put it out soon next year. I'm look for that as well, of course, just as a, a bonus. But Shonen Note, which we know is coming and come to print. Yeah, I'm, I'm very excited. And the last license I'll mention that I'm excited for and... This is both because of the creator and because I know who's working on it, is Witches, a new manga from Daisuke Igarashi. And, you know, I know that the letter of the series is it's, going to be in good hands. And I'm just very excited for this and intrigued by this because, well, I'm always into stories about witchcraft and Daisuke Igarashi's art is just so fantastic and immersive in the worlds that he creates and can draw you into. And especially after revisiting Children of the Sea, after seeing the movie earlier this summer and just being like enthralled by that world, that vision he had created in that series all over again. Like, yeah, I'm super excited to dig back into another Igarashi work and get lost in his art. And especially when complemented with the fantastic lettering, I know it's going to have. And those will do it for the five licenses that I will mention. But, you know, there were a lot of good ones. So my short list, you know, there was a lot others that I, I could have mentioned, but... I think going over it again, those are the five I think I am the most, most excited to read. But it goes without saying that I left off a lot of things that I'm also really much, I'm really looking forward to. Mm, well, hopefully there's one or two of them here that maybe uh, we could talk about with, with my picks. So uh, again, in no particular order, I think these are basically the picks that like, when I looked through basically all the licenses that we've mentioned on the show, at least, uh, these were the ones that kind of like stood out to me. Um, first off, 
you know, is one that we've mentioned on the show that I've also mentioned, like, hey, I've read this before when it was scanlated, and now I really can't wait to, like, you know, actually be able to buy it is The Breaker, uh, which is, a, I, I think, the first manhwa I ever read that I think was, like, recommended to me by a friend, and it was definitely really up my alley. Uh, it's a, fr- from what I remember, it's a really great action comic, and yeah, I, I haven't read it in so long, so, like, I'm really excited to be able to, like, actually read it officially soon. Which is nice. Uh, hopefully, I can pick up my copy at some point here. Um, so I definitely want to get to that. Next thing I want to mention is uh, the Exo Drive Reincarnation Games All Japan Isekai Battle Tournament, and th- this was this was one of the few that like really got me on premise alone. Because you know I mentioned on the show before I'm not super into isekai. It's just not a genre that I'm ever really super interested in diving into a lot. But this is the one with, like, the most outlandish premise that, like, I'm totally into and I definitely want to check out. Because I I think when we were talking about it, uh, the synopsis literally says that it starts with a guy being isekai'd and then being run over by a truck or something, which is really great. Um, It sounds like a lot of really, like, outlandish bullshit happens in this uh, series in particular. Like, it sounds like the kind of thing that, like, has the potential to really, like, you know, turn the isekai genre on its head and really go all out with its Betty Tropes and whatever. So I definitely, uh, on the over the topness of the premise alone, I wanted to check that out. And then I guess the next one I want to mention uh, is one that I still will never get over because it's one that literally got licensed the night after I said, hey, it'd be funny if this <laughs> licensed this. Uh, it was just a random guess on my part, but I never thought they would actually license Dragon Quest Adventures of Die. And yeah, I'm, I'm really excited that this is coming out. Uh, I'm really glad that... Uh, you know, now with the new Dragon Quest anime still airing from Toei, that uh, there seems to be enough interest on Viz's part to, like, actually pick this up. I don't think we still know for sure, like, how much of it they're going to bring out, because, again, the wording from their initial announcement makes it sound like they're at least committing to, like, the first arc of the manga. Um, But again, we'll kind of have to see. So it it might depend on, like, how well it does in sales, possibly, Uh, Which means I'm definitely going to pick up the first volume and try to, like, stick with this. Because, like, I've always wanted to read this. uh, But, you know, from what I hear, uh, translations of it online aren't super great. Um, So I'm really glad that we're getting this, like, officially. And, yeah, I just just really want to pick it up. I'm all about classic shonen manga. So it's definitely on my list. And then let's see here. Uh, Another one that I really wanted to pick up, uh, basically because it's one that... uh, I saw Maxi in particular talk about when it was running is uh, Lost Lad London. That one in particular, I was really hoping it would get picked up, but uh, I'm I'm glad that it did because you know it it's it's just one of those things where like it doesn't look like a lot of manga that I've read. It definitely has a very unique art and sense of style, and uh, you know the setting is also really cool because I believe it does take place in London as per the title, you know, um, and. Yeah, just from what I what I've what I had seen of like, you know, Maxi tweeting it online, like it just it just looked really cool. And I it just, you know, it just looked really unique. And I really can't wait to check it out. I was definitely very excited when uh, that got announced in particular. Uh, And then I think the last one I want to mention is uh, another license from Denpa, one that uh, I'm really interested in seeing, like how the release of this is going to pan out, because I I believe they're still looking for people to work on this, and plus it's a long series too, so uh, I'm really interested in seeing how the release of uh, March Comes In Like a Lion's gonna end up panning out, you know, because, you know, that was a series that uh, I had always heard so much about, especially from, like, people who watch the anime, I've heard so many good things about the anime, 
and it was definitely a series that was on my on my list to get to eventually. But uh, yeah, I've also heard good things about the manga, and yeah, it's just I just really want to check it out. It just looks really cool, and yeah, I think that's about it for kind of my list of stuff that uh, I was kind of looking forward to the most from the past year, and uh, I, I can't wait to buy all of these. Yeah. Excellent choices. There really were just an incredible selection of licenses from last year to look forward to reading this year. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I will admit, you know, when we have to do like our select licensing, like highlights, you know, every news episode, because so much gets licensed in one month, usually every month. Uh, it's so hard to pick like just 10 sometimes, let alone like five, you know, like out of the whole year, because like a lot of really good stuff got announced this year. Indeed. Uh, and I'm very much looking forward to what gets uh, licensed uh, this year in 2022. So that'll be interesting. But yeah, why don't we why don't we talk about our favorite new North American manga releases of 2021? If you just want to go ahead and go first again. Sure. Just an update on Hurret before we begin. I looked back into it, and it looks like it is still going to come out this year on March 29, 2022. Okay. So just an extra two-month wait from what we originally thought. But yeah, of course, I am still looking forward to reading that along with Shonen Oak. And it's great to have like two new Kamatani works to look forward to this year. But on the subject of my favorite new North American manga releases of 2021, new titles that were published in 2021, well, wouldn't you know it, but most of these, four out of the five, were titles that I said in last year's podcast I was looking forward to coming out this year. Forward to reading. They made my list of my favorite new North American manga licenses of 2020. And would you know it, they are in my favorite new releases of 2021. The only one that didn't make it is a title that did not release this year, but will be coming next year. But to go into my list from bottom to top, and number five, we got the one title that I would not put on my list of things I was looking forward to last year, but nonetheless was really happy to read and enjoy being it all the same, was... Shigeru Mizuki's adaptation of the Tono Monogatari, the classic beloved work of supernatural literature, folk tales from the Tono free sector by folklorists and female researchers, celebrating and archiving those legends. Really, this book, I enjoyed it in of itself for Mizuki's whimsical take on these folk legends and for his self-inserts and its commentary on the legends itself, like drawing himself or drawing Nezumi Otoko, like just commenting on them and interacting with the stories. I enjoyed like that kind of self-referential mix of the folk stories and then like him as a person, the meddiness of it. But I, I also, you know, just this year, of course, I really got into Mizuki because of our guitar podcast and reading up a guitar, reading up on all those other works in preparation for that podcast and reading to the guitar was part of that. And yeah, it was just a really fantastic read. This was a story. This was an adaptation of manga that Mizuki made later in his life, like in the late aughts. But it's just still like... Uh, it looked really great. Just the strength of his drawings, the way he could like so brilliantly and beautifully in, in such detail illustrate the landscapes of Tono, the forest and the fields, the mountains, the way he could imagine and come up with designs for all these folk monsters, these local yokai. 
it was really fun to read. And just, you know, I really just appreciate Mizuki's sense of humor, his passion, his interest in the supernatural, and how he was able to explore that through this adaptation of, of course, a classic formative text on local yokai. And yeah, I really, really enjoyed reading this book. It stuck out to me and, you know, definitely encouraged and solidified my appreciation and love for Mizuki as a creator. And yeah, that's more than enough for it to make my list of my favorite releases this year. Now getting into the four titles that I had mentioned in the last year that now you are listening to me talk about as my favorite releases of 2021. We're going to start with my number four pick, Even Though We're Adults by Takako Shimura. It sounds like a very complicated tale of two women like navigating a messy relationship in terms of one of them is married and experimenting with her sexuality, not really sure what she wants. The other one has had a history of being in ill-fated relationships with by women who ultimately leave her to get married or otherwise just abandon their relationship with her. And yet, even though she sees the warning signs in her relationship with this girl, with this married woman, even so, you know, Akari can't help but be, you know, enthralled. and can't help but, like, want to see this person, want to spend time with them. Like, even though she knows that I could just get hurt again, because this could get messy and complicated, you know? And she, even though there are moments where, like, she says, oh, this is, like, the same thing I've heard, like, before, you know? That, oh, I started this affair because, you know, I fell in love with you. It's like, I've heard these kind of lines before. But, like, even so, even though she sees warning signs, she can't help but want to see this person. And similarly for Ayano, like, even though she has all these complicated feelings about, like, hurting her husband, even though she doesn't really know what she necessarily even wants out of her relationship with Akari. Like, she also just has, like, this desire, like, I want to see this person. And then their poor husband gets roped into this, and, like, he has to deal with this idea of, like, okay, well, why did my wife start this affair? Like, why was she unhappy? And then there's all these sort of messy, complicated feelings about, like, just not knowing what they really want other than like but like trying to make things work with each other and it's just also it's handled like these characters handle things like so awkwardly but also like maturely in the sense of like they're trying to figure things out and talk things out and figure out their feelings but it's just like such complicated feelings to navigate and it's very interesting like very real feeling in terms of like kind of the complicated emotions that are being explored to these characters. And I appreciate it. I, in general, appreciate more stories about, like, adult characters navigating their relationships and all the characters in the series are, like, in their 30s. And, you know, that's that adds something because there's a weight and pressure on these characters that are so different from, you know, younger characters. And I just enjoy reading more stories like that. And that was a part of the appeal, but just in the characters themselves and like just the fact that they have this irresistible attraction that they know is not necessarily good for them but they can't help but want to see each other and they can't help but like dig themselves into situations that just make things even more awkward and complicated that they can't escape from it it's just so so compelling and so really enjoying reading this one and excited to see like how it's continuing to pan out now, my number three pick is, of course, the new Nagata copy book we got last year, and that is my alcoholic escape from reality, dealing with copies time, like trying to reconcile her dependency on alcohol and her time being hospitalized for her alcohol addiction. You know, as always, 
Cobby's works really do cut like a knife and are just so compelling to read. And even though, unlike with her experiences with depression, I don't have the same experiences with, like, alcohol or chemical dependencies, like, still, you know, how Cobby is able to visualize the problem she is going through is very compelling. And she plays with color and medium in this story in a really great way that showed her growth as an artist, a continuing growth as an artist in all of her series. Which I just find really fascinating as, like, just a, f- a fan of her as an artist. And, yeah, like, I'm so... It's such a messy thing to be, like, a fan of her works and her autobiographical works in particular. Because it's you don't know if, like, that's putting pressure on her to continue to write about herself. And it feels, like, difficult to, like, continue to read about how much trouble she's in. But... All through her work, like, there, she comes to a conclusion of, like, she realizes, okay, this is the hole I kind of dig in myself into, but then this is how I can accept and reconcile that, and now here is a moment of hope. Here is a lesson that I can take from this and continue by exploring my pain to just try and communicate that even through all the struggle, you know, it's important to continue to have perseverance and hope and continue to try and be better. And I think Kabe explored that really deftly and poignantly throughout the book. And it made for an incredibly powerful, compelling read. And I know that her next book, Wandering World Existence, that's going to come out this year, will go into like even more difficult, fraught, painful territory. Uh, traumatic territory and that's going to also be a tough read i'm sure but i do see through these books like kabi continuing to self-reflect and self-actualize and show a lot of emote growth in her both skills and arms and also in her mental health or like wanting to take realizing increasingly she wants to take ownership of her mental and physical health. And I just enthralled by her work and just want to continue following her as a creator and continue reading her art, whether it's autobiographical or otherwise, because I think that she just has such a incredible way of communicating these just complicated, uh, often painful experiences in just a poignant way that I think a lot of people, myself included, have really resonated with and find a lot of hope and empathizing with those experiences and relating them. And then, yeah, I think she just really cuts to the heart of, you know, just struggling, uh, but trying to be better, you know, just one step at a time, really well, really poignantly. And my number two pick is Boys Run the Riot by Kirigaku. And of course, you know, we talked extensively about this uh, in our podcast before, but, you know, uh, just... A really great story about clothes as identity, about, you know, exploring gender identity and being able to be proud and present yourself and be seen for who you are without fear and shame. And I think, you know, there are a lot of difficult moments in terms of like characters who are also queer or also like having identity problems, like kind of, you know, not necessarily like being on the same page and causing problems for the other. And there's all sorts of like, you know, difficult things in that way. But overall, I do appreciate that it's not like a story that is about like the painful experiences of being created. It's actually a celebration of, you know, being able, the freeing power of just exploring your identities through arts, through creating things and through Again, fashion and just the way you present yourself. And that's what I really love and appreciate about it. 
and what I find so compelling about it. And it's just been a treat to read. And yeah, it's just remained one of the favorite things I've read just from last year. And the same is true of my number one pick. I think our son is Gary Okara, which is such a charming, funny, but also just really resonant series and powerful in just how wholesome it oftentimes is, but also how kind of definitely it also can cut to anxieties you may have just being, uh, you know, closeted about your identity or just like not being sure or being afraid to like express openly a lot of your interests to people around you, but still seeing and having that support and validation from the people in your life until you are ready to share those things with them. And even more than that, in recognizing kind of the way our actions, like what we teach others, especially kids when they were young, about what are considered normal behaviors, like how that and how we socialize, how that can really affect them, how affect their understanding of themselves and affect their confidence in like how they express themselves in ways that oftentimes can be uh, restricting, damaging, and how it's important to, you know, kind of chip away at those kind of antiquated ideas of gender and gender values of like what is masculine, what is acceptable for boys to do or girls to do. And just allow people to express themselves and explore their feelings just authentically. And just communicate how they feel to other people without fear. And I think that is just a very, like, touching, powerful message that is communicated just through the arc of flashbacks between Tomoko and Hiroshi. Uh, Just the narrative arc of, like, her reflecting upon how he's been raised and how that has shaped into the person he is and how she has taken lessons from that to try and create an open and supportive environment, validating environment for him to just allow him to feel comfortable as himself and being himself. And even though the structure of the series is short chapters, four pages each, and even though it is ostensibly meant to be just like a slice of life comedy, I think there is just act oh, honestly a lot of very kind of powerful resonant stuff in talking about queer identity and being expressive about yourself in the story just through the arcs of the characters and characterization. There's just a lot of very nuanced layers to it that I incredibly appreciate and could find just so much to dig into that I was able to write so extensively about both volumes. And I just find so much to enjoy in the series and so much that resonates with me in the story and in the characters and see so much of myself uh, in a lot of them and in their experiences and in these experiences. And as mentioned before, like it's also kind of like a cathartic, therapeutic fantasy for a lot of people who might not have that support network that Hiroshi has. And uh, I think that is what makes it so meaningful in its own right. And it's definitely, it's probably a story that I think the amount you'll get out of it is going to depend on uh, the experiences you've had and how much a story like this would mean to you or how much you would need it or, uh, you know, how much. But I think uh, for me, it hit really well it struck a big chord with me both volumes and when i think back about everything i read there were a lot of great stories a lot of powerful stories i read but even though i think our son is gay doesn't deal with the most fraught situations in terms of stakes 
it still was a story that like hit me the most, made me tear up the most, and made me smile the most. And because of that, it was by far and away the series that most resonated with me, most stuck in my heart, and unquestionably in my mind earned its spot as my favorite manga, my favorite new manga release of 2021. Boy, that was beautiful. I don't think I could top that at all. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. No, I'm excited for your favorites as well, because there are a lot of great picks from last year. I mean, yeah, but mine mine aren't like super special. Um, I I also only have three picks I really want to like highlight. I think three that I'm like, I was like the most excited for Uh, one that I didn't know I really want it, but we'll get into it. So again, no particular order. One of the picks I really want to acknowledge on my list here is the new release of Akira Toriyama's manga theater, because look, I mean, I think ever since I really got into the Dragon Ball manga in particular and read stuff like uh, Neko Majin in, uh, in the Viz issues of Shonen Jump, which, man, I really wish that would get released in some way, shape, or form, but <laughs> yeah. maybe one day. I, I I have even emailed Viz about it at one point. <laughs> so I was like, man, uh, you should bring this over. And they were like, yeah, sure, I guess. That's not really what they said, but you know, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, I'm sure there are like 12 people out there that really want it, but it's like, I, I look, I guess never say never, but... I'm just glad that we got any, like, I mean, you know, we, we've gotten other Toriyama manga in the past. I mean, you know, we have, you know, off the top of my head, we have San Lang, uh, Koa, Jacko the Galactic Patrolman. That was a big deal because that even got a pub. But, you know, it's like we could always use more. And I'm just glad that we have this big, giant 600-page collection of, uh, of even more Toriyama stuff that, like, uh, that really kind of, like, uh, I guess in terms of, like, the range of his comics, like, really stems from, like, pre-Doctor Slump to, like, post-Dragon Ball. Like, it's a really good collection of his stuff that, uh, admittedly, I haven't really had the chance to, like, dig into a lot of yet. But, man, like, there's just so much to dig into. And there's there's so much of Toriyama stuff that, like, you know, I've only ever heard of from people like, you know, the good people over at Konzenshu who do really great work on not just Dragon Ball stuff, but also Toriyama stuff in general, like... You know, the stuff that I only I had only ever like heard of that, like, I never thought I'd really have the chance to read. But now I do officially in English, uh, you know, worked on by people who clearly love Toriyama and his body of work. So, you know, that that makes me feel good to know in particular. Um, and yeah, just, uh, you know, I I hope I mean, this this is a good first step into I mean, because. Obviously, we don't have all of Toriyama's stuff, I don't think, but, like, I think this is a really good collect, like, a good collection of his stuff that, like, if you're looking for more Toriyama comics, this'll, this'll really scratch that itch, I think. Um, so, that, that was a release that, uh, I definitely, uh, I mean, I, I, originally I was gonna buy it, and then a friend of mine actually got it for me for Christmas, and that might be the best Christmas gift I got, actually, um, it was, uh, <laughs> it was a good gift, but, um. Uh, the 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 next thing I really want to highlight is, and you know I I this is one I mentioned last year as you know well you know this is this is a license that got licensed last year that I was really looking forward to that we eventually got and did a whole podcast on was Fist of the North Star. I uh, I mean look Fist of the North Star I think I said it on last year's Best of Manga podcast where um you know this this was the license that like 
people really wanted but like never thought we would get and that we got. We have three whole volumes of Fist of the North Star out at the time of this recording, and we're going to get the rest of it. And, you know, uh, I guess I could just say it here because, you know, we're going to talk about our favorite ongoing uh, manga releases in a little bit. And, I mean, admittedly, it's it's very hard for me to keep up with, like, uh, for, for new manga releases, like, as they're releasing, just because of budgetary constraints, let's say. But um, Fist of the North Star is one of the few series that, like, I'm really actually trying to keep up on the releases of. Like, I'm... I, I have all three volumes at this point, and I'm hoping to get the fourth one when it's out. Like, I really want this to succeed because it's kind of amazing that we're getting it in the first place. And yeah, I mean, it's it's really hard to argue that, like, Fist of the North Star isn't the biggest release that we got this past year, honestly. Like, it's just, I'm, st- I'm still, I'm I'm flabbergasted that it's on my bookshelf right now. I can't, I can't believe this. I'm still kind of speechless, but... <laughs> But here, so uh, the last thing I really want to highlight is one that uh, I, I found out about, like, really, really late into 2021, and I immediately did a pre-order of, because it's like, oh, this is like a piece of manga history that I really want to own, is Inoue Kazuo's Bat Kid, published by Bubbles, I believe, and uh, yeah, I think uh, I, I randomly saw someone retweet uh, Ryan Holmberg in particular, who did the translation for this book. You know, I randomly saw someone like retweet him, you know, basically saying how this was coming out and uh, he was posting like pre-order links. And I'm like, oh, what is this? And, you know, like personally, like, you know, I'm, I've talked about it on the show before. I'm not like as into baseball comics as, say, like our good friend Maxi, who is all about baseball comics. You know, not that I dislike him, but... You know, I don't like him as much as they do in particular, but like, look, I'm all about classic manga and I'm also all about, you know, having some sort of like manga history. Like this was, uh, for those who don't know, if I remember correctly, this is either the first baseball manga to be published or at least like one of the first. It was definitely like very influential for its time, as far as I know. And uh, it was that piece of info in particular that really made me interested in like picking this up and checking it out. And uh, I haven't had the chance to like finish it yet. But um, from what I kind of like skimmed over it, it just it's just a nice piece of history to have. And I'm glad that like any publisher was able to like bring this out at all. And it even came with like a little baseball card and stuff like this is this is just a nice a nice release that like, you know, I, I feel bad that like we haven't really had the chance to like highlight on the show, but it's just it's just a cool thing to have. And I don't really know what else to say other than that. Mm, yeah, no, it's really cool to have like classic underground manga, but important pieces of manga history continue to be licensed and shared. And I definitely want to buy the Bat Kid and read it soon because there, I know there's also an essay related to Rokuhachi's Love of the Hanshin Tigers in there that I absolutely must read. So yeah, like it's great. And of course, Ryan Holmberg really works on a lot of really great indie underground manga titles. And absolutely, I'd love to pick up more of that and read more of that kind of stuff going forward as well. So I definitely encourage uh, these projects and looking forward to more. Um, but that's really about it for that category. And like it, like I said earlier, I don't really have anything to add to our next category. So, Lum, if you want to talk about your favorite ongoing North American manga releases of 2021, uh, now's the time. Indeed. Before I dig into them, 
I will just say that I'm going to leave all the Rumukodahaka Hashi titles that were published last year as <laughs> honorable mentions just because it goes without saying that I am a big fan and I love them. So There's probably enough that they would just take up all your list. I mean, there are, because <laughs> there were five titles published last year. Yuri Yatsura, Mason Okoku, Mermaid Saga, Renee, and Mao. And of course, I wrote about Mermaid Saga uh, as I did a review for... The website, and of course, I'm covering volumes on Lunchcon, so you know my thoughts. You can hear them there. Oh, and also on um over MangaCast too. We forgot to mention that at the top of the show that you were a you were a guest. You did a guest spot for that podcast in particular. Yeah, and that was a lot of fun uh, revisiting the stories and discussing it with them. So yeah, definitely check out the podcast. We had a fun time talking about the stories, including a lot of the <laughs> wilder ones, especially. So very, very great time. So yeah, check that out. But yeah, no, I mean, so yeah, you know where you can find my thoughts. So you're saying some talking in particular, Ikoku, like I obviously should do more, but obviously I love Ikoku. I've been not only revisiting the manga, but with the new releases, but watching the anime, rewatching the anime recently. So that's been great. And Renee, Wild Volumes finally came out this year. And uh, I, I enjoyed ending a lot. And Rene- eventually, Renee on SNS, Saturday Night Shockey. We had plans for it, but it's been delayed, as are our plans to review Mao. But Mao, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed the series when it was first coming out. And I was couldn't hold myself back from reading those chapters. And uh, the official translation, the official localization is extremely good. And I'm really into the story. I, I think it's like Takahashi kind of refining what she was trying to do in Inuyasha and early Inuyasha, especially, and really having kind of perfected it in terms of creating this like interesting mystery action series. And yeah, like I obviously big Takahashi fan, loves all those series and you can find, uh, no shortage of me celebrating them elsewhere. But for this time, I wanted to focus on different titles that I, you know, don't talk about as much. The top ones, uh, we did talk about, it, but we'll get to them. But my number five is Eniali and Duwila by Kamui Shirahama. And I will say uh, the kind of bottom picks of my list have like one volume released last year, but most of their volumes released this year. So if I was waffling whether should I count these as new releases of this year, but since the first volumes came out last year, technically, I decided to put them on this ongoing list. But yeah, Anayali and Dwyla, you know, Kamui Shirahama's art is just <laughs> stunning. And she goes crazy with the series in how detailed her interpretations of angelic and demonic iconography are and her deep pulls from various, like, religious texts or texts of, like, demonology or whatnot. And she just makes it into, like, a fun satire, <laughs> odd couple rom-com romp with this angel and devil who, you know, are sometimes the best of friends, gal pals who hang out and like go shopping together, and then other times are like at each other's necks for the souls of the departing and like fighting over who will get to take a soul to heaven or whether the eye is going to take it to hell. And so they have like fun back and forth craziness like that, and it's just a lot of fun to read. And there are a lot of really fun, crazy stories, uh, like you know. There's a story about, like, a priest who, you know, falls in love with this woman who's, like, a hitman, and so he sells his soul to Delilah to become a demon. 
And then and Yali ends up like trying to bring him back to the side of the light, but like she ends up getting like killed and then turning into a zombie and then turns everyone else into zombies. And then but the big punchline is that they, you know, this priest was through all this effort, but the girl in hell is like, oh, I liked you because you were like the pure upstanding type. I'd rather see you as an angel. And it's just like fun, like playing with ideas of the conflict between angels and devils. And like these, going in these absurd, taking things to absurd, ridiculous extremes, and then like having like the funniest ironic punchline to it all. So there are a lot of really fun stories like that. It's just such a shoot dream. And Caleb's translation, like, man, Caleb really the bang up job, like finding just some of the the best puns and idioms and terms of phrases to, you know, incorporate and play off of the angel and devil team of the series like and some very clever uh localization choices too like taking ikemento mori and then just making it hunkmento mori <laughs> is a good idea uh and then yeah just a lot of fun play on words that Caleb does a great job with. There's like a particular sequence. There was just like characters playing off of like different ways of saying God damn, God damn it. Like there was a chapter like this girl who was like continually being possessed by Japanese gods. And so like she would start to say something and the god would take it who possessed her would like take it in a completely different direction. There were so many clever spins of phrase and wordplay there. So well, Caleb's translation, localization was really spot on. Just uh, beautifully well done. But yeah, like I, I really enjoyed reading this one. Kamoi Shirahama is, as an artist and a story is just so great. And this is just such a funny, fun series. And I think my only regret with this one is that I wish it ended on a little bit of a stronger note. It kind of ends with an arc where it's like do we follow Duwila for like three chapters on her own. And it's a fun one where she's like kind of involved with like this play that's you know, this elderly actress woman is like putting on about devils and she wants to make it her masterpiece. And so she sells her actor's souls to Devila so that she'll grant them like really good skills. And then when the actors find out about that, they're not like necessarily upset that their souls are being sold. They just like want even more and more and that twists them into monsters and goes crazy. And then that gets Dewila kind of outed and discovered by like, the kind of Zenigata type person who's like trying to track an Yali and Dewala because of their shenanigans all the time. And that just leads into a bunch of like crazy shenanigans from there. But like it's we just went a long time with like Dewala on her own and then any like just comes in the last chapter. And I just kinda wish there was like a stronger I do wish they we just had like the final arcs or the final chapters had more of them together. But still it was like incredibly fun to read. And there is like a lot of sweet moments in the last chapter where like they're fighting and then it comes to a point where well the Wiley says, Oh, Anyale, you were jealous because you thought I was gonna be taken away by this guy in a romantic way. It's like, oh and I that was a sweet moment about these two, like realizing, oh, they really care about each other as friends, even though they're at each other's throat and they're all like opposite sides in terms of like like, you know, the heaven-hell conflict and whatnot. So, yeah, it is a sweet, funny read. And uh, I I wish there was more, but, you know, uh, bad. that's what which had ateliers for in terms of, like, great manga by Shirahama, which I ought to get caught up on. I'm just a little, a little behind. But, you know, Shirahama, great artist. And, uh, I mean, I'll do a great series. Uh, my number four pick is Our Teachers Are Dating by Pikachu Oni. This series is, you know, similar to even though we're adults, I really appreciate just series about, like, adults 
in a relationship, just kind of working through it. And in this case, you know, it's like a super mutual, supportive, wholesome relationship. Unlike even the word else where it's like so messy, it's like this our teacher thing like complete opposite of like you know, the main couple involved, Hayase and Tara, are, like, so supportive of one another and, like, so thoughtful to be considerate of how the other person is feeling and, like, just wanting to make each other happy and not overstepping boundaries. And so they, a lot of really good communication between them. And they're also just supported by, like, all their friends and their students at the school. And, you know, the, the their main, like, friends are, like actively shipping them together like one of them literally calls them like Haya Terra and it's like oh this is like the best ship like it's just so into all their cute moments and that's very cute I just think what's nice is that they just have like a really nice thoughtful relationship as like kind of navigating each other's boundaries and like throughout the the first while in particular it was like them like kind of working to being able to express their desire to be physically intimate with one another and then like in well in students three of course you know after bringing the boundary there's like additional like discussions of like you know what boundaries uh should we acknowledge or like you know trying to be considerate of the other person like you know, understand and learn even more about them. And it's just very wholesome and very cute. And like every chapter of the series like has like the the most sweetest romantic type kiss scene ever. Like they just the artist just keeps drawing just like great kiss scenes, great romantic moments that are like so sweet and also oftentimes can be very spicy. And they also draw really great like sex love making scenes that are just so like nice and intimate and just communicate like just how much the main couple really cares about each other and like trying to and how happy they are to be together and it's just really sweet it's just a very charming wholesome funny read that uh, i just enjoy reading and again i appreciate just like a wholesome romance story just about adults in a relationship and just being supported by the people in their lives and it's just very nice to read on the subject of another like just kind of charming kind of queer a uh, story about adults. I really like Manly Appetites by Beto. This is just a nice story about like two co-workers. Like one is like the super handsome guy who's like, you know, very beloved this workplace because he's like super skilled, super on top of things professionally. And just the other guy, he's a little more introverted and a little more cranky. And, you know, he like, of course... Minigichi, uh, he keeps, like, getting Otsu, like, a lot of things to eat, and like, he continues doting on him. And at first, like, Otsu is not, like, understanding, like, why Minigichi's, like, paying so much attention to him and kind of is, like, jealous or even resentful of him. But over the course of the story, like, he comes to understand him even more and more, understand his feelings for him more, and then, like, his own feelings for Minigichi starts to reflect upon and realize how much he cares about him. And so I just love seeing their relationship develop in that way. It's like, you know, as considerate and thoughtful, like Minigishi tries to be of Otsu, like Otsu starts to think and try to be more thoughtful of him as well. And it becomes something very charming. And they haven't like officially like kind of gone out yet. But at this point, they kind of have started to like really acknowledge the way the other feels about each other. And it just continues to be a fun read. And also, I like having a story about a character who is overweight, but still, like, decelerated for, like, you know, someone who likes them for who they are and enjoys just 
watching them and just enjoying them being them. It's like, I, like, Minigishi takes just such happiness in just watching, like, Otsu eat something he enjoys. And it's just very wholesome and cute. And similarly, like, yeah, like, I, I think it's just a very sweet relationship again about just like two adults who kind of compliment each other and are becoming considerate of each other and then realize their feelings to each other. And uh, yeah, it's just such a charming joy to read. Now, my number two pick is a series that the podcast we recorded about the series last year and it was my chance to catch up on it. And they aren't out yet, but I definitely want to get them out soon because I really love catching up on the series and continuing to read it past when we covered it. And that's Yona of the Dawn. And this was a really great year for Yona of the Dawn with the Sen Province arc, which had such a great culmination of things of like Yona being put in a position where she's trying to predict the dragons. And then Hawk is, you know, trust into the front lines of a battlefield and gets to lead an army for the first time. And also he has like a great fight, probably one of the best fights in the series. Again, Sansara, who is just also a very interesting, fascinating antagonist uh, in his own right, because he walks the lines between like this moral grayness of like having this sense of honor and a sense of like wanting to do best for his tribe, while also not being afraid and doing underhanded things like kidnapping on her or not, but still having, like, a sense of allergies, unlike Priscobi, the utter deuteragonist of the arc. Uh, so, yeah, like, it was a super compelling arc. But even, but the stuff after that has been incredibly compelling, too, with, like, the return to the capital of Coca and, then like, having to navigate, like, being kind of manipulated as, like, kind of a, like, figurehead, like, kind of being manipulate as part of different schemes that Keishuk is trying to set up in order to consolidate power for Suwon and then Yona trying to resist against that but then also discovering you know the big secret of like the crimson illness and having complicated feelings about again like trying to in her own way kind of protect dragons but also you know figure out how to best you know help the country and then also try to understand more about Suwon and what's really going on with the whole legend the Crimson Dragon King and the whole mythology and its involvement in the, the politics of Koka and what happened that caused like you know Suwon to assassinate her father and all that stuff and that's been really interesting and it's the backstory of like you know the relationship of Suwon's parents and how that's embroiled with the whole religious zealotry that you know his father King Hill had for the legend of the Crimson Dragon, like all that stuff and how that may have shaped and affected things that happened in the events of the story uh, before it began. It's been all really fascinating, compelling stuff. It was such a really great year for Yona. And especially, of course, like the Yona Hawk relationship stuff this year was extremely good. Like the big kiss they shared when they, you know, Hawk rescued Yona was incredible. But also, you know, Yona finally being open and confessing her feelings to Hawk was great. And then even from there, like them just kind of navigating how they feel each other, but also not kind of forgetting like their own goals of like wanting to, to protect the kingdom, wanting to protect the other person in their own way is really nice. Like Hawk's decision, you know, being separate from Yona at the castle, of course, like he decides, okay, if they're not going to let me be by Yona's side, I'm going to, like, work my way up all over again from the start. And so he joins, like, the Sky Tribe's army, just as, like, a, a foot soldier, grunt newbie, and it's, like, working his way up to there just to, you know, prove himself that he's committed to protecting Yona, even if it means, like, working alongside the 
person he hates most in this enemy, so he's not going to fall prey to Kaishik's manipulation to get rid of him. And it's like super inc- intriguing, compelling character relationship stuff there. And yeah, it's just been a very strong year of Yona. And I was very happy to have caught up on the series this year and now be in a position to continue to follow the nuance as they come out. And it's been really exciting stuff for the series. And I'm really looking forward to see where things go next. I definitely need to read more Yona of the Dawn. For sure. Yeah, and I highly encourage it because, yeah, it's, it's excellent. And my number one series of the year, in contrast to Yona, which had six months a year, only released one volume this year. But still, uh, that one volume is just so dense with so much that have left me with that I could write extensively about it. I had so much to say about the series that, you know, I think I went on like 10 minutes straight talking about it on the podcast we covered <laughs> it because I just... There was just so much it was doing thematically and narratively that fascinated me and enthralled me. And that was Pop Life by Nami Kuta. And that series uh, just was such a poignant reflection on relationships that we form between people. And then, you know, cherishing them both in the moment, but also understanding the ephemerality of them that oftentimes like relationships between people they come and go people come in and out of your life and it can be oftentimes painful and harmful to hang on to a relationship past the point that it has value or is enjoyable for people especially through the metaphor uh, with the grammars and also especially the story of Sakura's cat like it was just like so poignantly kind of uh, explored to those and it kind of leads up to this moment where you know a, this big decision has to be made of like the found family that has kind of be created between the Kitanos and Chibas you know they have to part ways at some point and also Sakura has to respect that like her her son is also growing up and is going to walk his own path at some point and it's it's just a great meditation on growing up and growing apart and the relationships we make and treasuring just the time we have with them but also respecting when it's time to let them go and just celebrating just creating continually new experiences relationships uh, and just letting life living life freely and letting not being afraid to let go and and not staying in one place and being free to continue to just move and evolve and meet new people and let go of people even so just very powerfully explore this through some very compelling stories very compelling relationships and characters that there is just so it was just so dense in everything it said and everything that Kyuta packed in these two volumes that it resonates with me it's like one of the most memorable books I read uh all year even even though like it was a book and we read like very earlier in the year like still like so vividly I could remember so many of the stories and so many like visual moments in that of these characters so yeah like it was definitely like one of the manga like i was most like excited by and like left the biggest impression on me and resonated with me like the most of like a a lot of the manga we covered on the show this year and a lot of the manga that i read this year outside of the show and so yeah like pop life very handedly uh, definitely earned its spot for me as my favorite ongoing release of the year. And it was a really strong year. And, you know, again, uh, I want to acknowledge like Starfruit Books just put out so many great books this year, so many great titles that I'm continuing to look forward to read, especially more works by Minami Kyuta. 
I didn't mention it as part of my top five licenses I'm looking forward to coming out in 2022, but I am looking forward to Not All Girls Are Stupid by Kyuta. I am very excited to read that collection of stories and just more Kyuta works in general. So yeah, like uh, she is a creator that is like super on my radar now because I super vibe with the ideas, with the feelings about relationships, about life. Uh, that she explores in her work through Pop Life and also some of the other stuff that has come out uh, that since. So I, I'm very, very much looking forward to more stuff from her. But yeah, Pop Life, my favorite ongoing book, ongoing release of the year. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it's it's a good book. Most of Starfruit Books' uh, titles, if not all of them, are like really super great and interesting, and I can't wait for more of them. Um, but I think that about covers every, every category having to do with, uh, you know, North American manga releases. We had a lot to talk about because so, ma- so many good releases came out last year. So Absolutely. Um, but now I think we should get into our favorite manga art of 2021. And just for context, this is sort of a catch-all category where, uh, you know, the, basically any pretty piece of manga art, whether it be like a volume cover a uh, color spread, a double spread, uh, an entire chapter that we think looked especially good. Like, really, any piece of manga art that really stood out to us over the past year, we're going to take the time to kind of mention it within this category. So, whatever kind of stood out to us, basically. And um, is it okay if I get some of my picks out first? Yeah, yeah. Uh, So, I'll try to make these quick, because I do have, like, a few picks I want to kind of, like, put out there some very artful moments in manga uh, from a few different series that really stood out to me over the past year. This one isn't so much a moment as it is kind of an entire chapter. And uh, when I I I really tried to go over my picks and really tried to think like, okay, yeah, what, what stood out to me this year? What, what am I still kind of thinking of after initially reading it uh, for the first time in 2021? And uh, I think elusive samurai chapter eight uh, you know, I, I think was the chapter of Elusive Samurai, if I wasn't already feeling it from the beginning, was was the point where I was like, yes, you say Matsui is back. He is back at it again <laughs> at Krispy Kreme. He just can't do no wrong. I'm 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 serious when I say I don't think you say Matsui can do a bad comic. It just hasn't happened yet. And I, I can't say that about most other manga artists. You know, some some artists, while I do love them. Every once in a while have like either a dip in quality or like some portions of whatever series they're doing that maybe I'm not super into or I don't think are as good personally. But you say Matsui really just always does good stuff. And it's a big reason why he's one of my favorite manga artists out there. And um, I, I think the thing that got me about Elusive Samurai in particular, because this is the chapter where Ogasawara is kind of in uh they he basically invades uh Yorishige and everybody else while they're at the like dog shooting track or whatever which Yorishige also is like hey look this is just what we did during this time please don't send us letters or whatever please don't get mad um which is a pretty great gag but um this is around the point where like cuz he's still kind of in the middle of like trying to sniff out Yorishige and everybody in order to find Tokiyuki or whatever and like i think um cuz you know i've gone on about this Time and time again, but like, you know, Assassination Classroom, as much as I loved it, I really feel like Matsui was kind of holding himself back compared to, say, Nero, where like, he really felt comfortable in like, really drawing his characters as like, grotesquely and over the top as possible. 
And I think Elusive Samurai is the first time in a while where he's able to do that kind of thing. Because, like, Ogasawara is not just, like, a really fun, like, antagonist to have go up against our main characters. But, like, his facial expressions are always funny. Like, his whole thing is that, like, he has, like, super clear vision or whatever. And obviously that's represented by by his eyes constantly bugging out in pretty much, like, every other panel he's in. So, like, uh, there, there are so many moments in Chapter 8 in particular where, like, most panels are just t- are just taken up by his, like, goofy-looking, eye-bulging face as he's constantly basically getting off on the idea of catching Yorishige and everybody and trying to, like, basically take them down. And, you know, how that kind of gets thrown back in his face where, like, Ogasawara challenges, uh, challenges them to, like, uh, an archery game or whatever, and Yorishige throws to- Tokiyuki in the corner and, like, tries to talk him up, like, hey, this guy's, like, a uh, are basically, like, the biggest loser in our area, so if you lose, you look bad or whatever. And, like, Yorishige having kind of the upper hand on Ogusawara as his face just, like, the, uh, I think it's one of my favorite panels in this chapter is of, like, again, Yorishige clearly having the upper hand trying to lord it over Ogasawara as like Ogasawara's eyes just like bug out in fear and like you have Yorishige like shining over him and like just lording him it's just it's so hard to describe like the facial expressions in this chapter are just like peak Matsui and I think was the point where I thought like yeah Matsui's back I am 100% into elusive samurai it's just I don't know, Matsui is just a good artist. Like, e- even if his art is not like like super polished or clean, like like it's 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 a style that's that's entirely his. And I think that's a big reason like why I love his stuff because his stuff is just so unmistakably Matsui. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of good art moments that are loose to Samurai. Oh my god, yeah, seriously. Um, uh, the the next two things I really want to point out are like uh just two double page spreads that like really caught my eye. Uh, the first one that I have mentioned on the podcast before, but I think it bears repeating, is a two page spread from Hunter's Guild Red Hood Chapter Two. Uh, for anyone who wants to look it up, it's pages uh, seventeen and eighteen in particular. Again, I mentioned before, but it's around the point where um Grim basically takes the giant bell in the bell tower and like uh basically knocks out one of the wolves with it. Uh, it's just such a great spread where Kawaguchi really gives a lot of space for you to like kind of take in the impact and the touch of like the sound effects like reverberating after the impact is like just such a great touch. Like I think, you know, uh, we, we've set our piece on Red Hood and like why it mostly didn't really work for most of its run, what it was really lacking, but like it was this moment in particular that really made me think like, man, I really want to see more from Kawaguchi. I really hope he gets another series and jump because like his art is just too good for him to not have a successful series. Like I'm I'm really hoping for the best for him because I think I think out of any moment in Hunter's Guild Red Hood, this is still like my favorite moment art wise. Just the the impact of the hit and like again the little touches with the sound effects and how they really show off like the effect that Grimm's attack has on her enemy. Like it's just it's just so good. Like I don't know how else to put it. It's one of the few art moments that I still really kind of think of after after all this time, you know, like over out of anything in the past year. This is, again, just one of my favorite art moments. It's just so good. Um, and then I guess uh, the last thing I really want to highlight is actually a two page spread from uh, from Witch Watch in particular, chapter 27, pages eight and nine. And it's uh, during the fight with Morihito and um, 
and I guess as we know, Kengo, that's not his name, uh, the wolf guy. I'm going to be very bad with names for probably some of this episode, but it is kind of during like that, um, that's, I guess, sort of the first like dramatic serious arc or whatever. And, you know, like Shidahara, you know, obviously, again, another one of my favorite artists, uh, manga artists in general. But I really think, you know, with with as much as like we could say about Witch Watch and how like maybe compared to Astro Lost in Space, it feels a little safe. Like he's just kind like he's kind of going back to the skit dance well a little bit for a lot of Witch Watch for some parts of it. But I do think that Shinohara has come a really long way in terms of like his action and choreography in particular, because um, uh, the, the fight from this part of the series in particular is really good. Like th- th- so this spread in particular is really good because uh, and it's. Um, it's gonna be really hard to describe, but it really feels like it really feels cinematic in the way where like Morihito's fight, it's it's really filmed like a like a like an action movie almost, like a like a kung fu movie where it's like th- like the camera feels like it's kind of like swooping around as uh as the wolf guy kind of like you know uh, runs around his opponent and how they try to get like a bunch of uh hits on each other and everything like it's just it's it's really hard to describe but it's so much more cinematic than i think a lot of uh, shinohara stuff usually is so i think you know a big reason why i wanted to highlight this moment is just because like it's just so it's just not something i feel like we've seen from shinohara yet in like the whole time he's been like you know doing manga for the past like 10 years or whatever like and i i hope we get to see more fights in witch watch here and there because like i really think he's come a long way as an action artist mm-hmm. that was a very memorable moment in how he drew the environment in a perspective shot so yeah that was a cool moment i mean yeah those were some of the most like artistic moments that really stood out to me this year i mean I think last year I talked about like what series I thought like overall had the best art. And it's really hard because I think last year I, I chose Phantom Seer because the art in Phantom Seer really like stood out to me that year. And unfortunately, uh, that's been canceled at this point. But, you know, Phantom Seer still looks great. And I'm still looking forward to uh, uh, Kento Matsura, you know, uh, getting another series, hopefully in the future. But um, it's really hard because like if, if I had to pick a series that I thought had the best art overall, that's really tough. But like and mm, I don't know if I have like a set pick, but like the two series that came to mind because like. I don't just want to say One Punch Man because I feel like that's such an easy choice because Yusuke Murata's art is always good. But if I had to pick something else other than One Punch Man, I'm kind of feeling Chochi Next, honestly, because like mm-hmm. um, Chochi Next, you know, for anyone who's been listening to the podcast, I said when we read that first chapter, it was my favorite new manga of the year. I was very confident in that. Um, stay tuned when we get to that category. But I, I think, uh, you know, as much as I like the story for Chochi Next and I like the characters, I think the art is the best thing about it. And I don't know, it's just, it's, especially when we got to uh, uh, the arc involving like Shiozaki in particular, there were so many great moments, I think, that really like represented his, uh, his like what he's going through, you know, with him having to quit baseball and everything. A, a lot of the stuff involving his backstory, I thought was like super, super good art wise, honestly. Yeah, the design of his like, chaos form was so excellent too mm-hmm. like the his baseball headed monster form oh yeah 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 that was like that was like one of my favorite like monster character designs for sure mm-hmm. like like in terms of any series where the art like constantly i thought was doing like something interesting or like stuff that i hadn't seen in like a lot of other manga before i think choji x kind of takes the cake for this year I mean, I'm sure there are other series I'm probably just not thinking of, but it, it was it was the one series overall that kind of like stood out to me, honestly. 
Yeah, I would agree that One Punch Man and uh, Chojin X were extremely well-drawn and had great, like, visual moments this year. So they rank among my favorite in terms of, like, overall, like, art history this year. Mm -hmm. The other two series I would acknowledge individually for their art quality and having consistently striking art moments would be Don the Don and Kaiju Number 8, who also have, like, supremely great action moments and just character designs and uh, consistently like just wow in terms of just like the strength and visual impact of their art. God, the, the moment in particular that I really thought about putting on my picks for Kaiju number eight was the moment where Kikoru is uh, saving Kafka from Kaiju number nine. And like, while he's literally in the middle of a uh, middle of a sentence, like Kikoru slashes him and the word bubble and the lettering also gets slashed in half too. Ah, oh, that was so good. Yeah, we talked about that in the lettering uh, roundtable, but that was a really cool moment. Oh, yeah. Uh, in terms of like how the lettering played into the art there and how also you kind of get a different effect from it between the original Japanese lettering and the English lettering in terms of like the communication of how instantaneous that hit and the reaction of number nine to that hit was. So, yeah, that was a really great particular moment in Kaiju Number 8. But if I were to discuss three specific visuals or moments in manga that have stuck in my head uh, since I read them, and that I could immediately spring to mind when I was thinking about what I wanted to acknowledge as my favorite moments of this year. My number three, I feel almost, is somewhat of a not a cheat, but it feels like it is definitely helped by how recent it was. But it still was such a striking moment that it couldn't help but think of it immediately. And that was the moment in Even If You Split My Mount, where we have Makoto, Moroku's brother, kind of reflecting on her in the past and seeing her just after she had scared someone in the past. And we have the page just turn to color as we see in his eyes, like her frightening beauty of her time and just her expression, her sense of like melancholic kind of loneliness, sadness, like just kind of this unsettlingness in how, you know, she did at look at once like kind of very pretty, but also there was a frightening quality to her in that coldness of her expression as well. And it stuck out to me, that expression, and also just that very nice use of a mid-chapter color page, which I always like seeing to emphasize particularly striking moments. So that does stuck with me, and that was like when I was thinking about, oh, what are moments that strike me? What are visuals that stick with me? That is one that immediately came to mind. Yeah, that was pretty good. Similarly, there is a particular... Like, My Hero Academia, I feel, has a lot of really good visual moments. Oh, I think Kokoshi yes. had a lot of great art moments this year. But the particular visual in My Hero Academia that stuck with me, that immediately sprung to mind upon reflection, was at the end of Chapter 317, where Deku, having really lost his way in taking on the burden of fighting all for one by himself after basically leaving All Might behind to just go it alone. Just the visual of his battered costume torn to shreds, his black whip just going out of control, like, besides him. Like, even his boots have been worn down to the point that they're, like, in the shape of, like, a skeleton feet almost covering. Like, like little claws or something. Yeah, just him just looking so worn out and ragged. And also, 
just frightening, no longer looking like the heroic figure that he aspired to be, but having kind of completely lost sight of that and has just become mired in just his burden and his mission that he is no longer uh, embodying that. It's now just like, looks just such like a frightening vision of his own well, and very, I think, acutely, considering Stain made an appearance in this chapter, watching my sidelines, very Stain like oh, as well. Yeah. Just emphasizing that he had just been losing himself in like his his idealism of being like, he's the only one who can do this. And yeah, just losing sight of what it really means to be here on that moment. And I, that, to me, was one of the most striking visuals uh, of my hero all year. That's, you know, just said a lot in just the degradation of Deku's costume and his state about, like, his mental state and his and his state at the time. And yeah, I just, uh, that visual just sticks with me. And yeah, it's, I think it's a really striking one. It's hard to argue that it's not like the most visually striking page of My Hero Academia all year, honestly. Yeah. I mean, especially with the chapter leading up to it. Also, re-emphasizing the message behind the visual of like Deku scaring people off who's trying to help, abandoning people who are trying to help him. You know, it's it's just a very potent encapsulation of how he's lost his way in this moment. I really, really appreciated it. But my number one favorite art moment of any Mongol year was just a completely silent, wordless moment, a sequence of pages, but it just was so striking and such an iconic representative moment of the series, of this like story that it, you know, it is the moment that I think people turn to when like they think of this. And it's the moment in Look Back. Where after Fujino has met with Kimoto and realizes and has found out Kimoto is her fan, has always been her fan, was asking her and looking forward to reading her next work. And she tells her, oh, I, I'm going to be entering this contest. I'm going to do that. And Kimoto asks her, oh, I want to read it so badly. It's the moment after that where she's walking home and it's starting to rain. And then she just starts, you know, skipping and skipping in the rain. And then it just leads into her dancing, just dancing on the road home in the rain. And that, to me, is just the most beautiful, the most memorable art moment of the entire year. And just how wonderfully encapsulated Fujino's just euphoria in that moment of finally finding someone who acknowledged and validated and was appreciative and looking forward to her art, a kindred spirit that she could talk to and communicate with her art and about her art with. And just that moment of her dancing in the rain on the road home in the rural countryside just is the most visually striking image, the most memorable visual moment in any serialized manga ever this year or manga released this year. Uh, you know what? Actually, I'm a little ashamed that I, I forgot about Look Back, honestly. Hmm. Forget forget what I said about One Punch Man and Choji Next. That actually might be the best looking piece of manga all year. It was a uh, incredibly well drawn and man there's so many incredible visual moments in the chapter because so much of this is just communicated not with even words but just the images of the characters in the writing characters in the same place just at different times and showing the progression of time it's just very striking but yeah oh man i mean in a chapter full of great moments like that was of course like the one that just immediately came to my mind first it's like yeah that was the most striking moment of the year for me. Mm -hmm. I, I hate to say it, but like any year that Tatsuki Fujimoto is doing something, it's probably going to beat out most picks I already thought of, honestly. His work is definitely 
consistently going to earn an accolade for some reason or another. I would not be surprised if when we do this next year, uh, that Chainsaw Man Part 2 is probably going to take up a lot of my picks if I'm not careful. <laughs> uh, just, just, just a prediction for next year. Um, I guess should we move on to our favorite new power slash technique slash transformation of 2021? Sure. Uh, I can go first really quickly because, um, okay, my, mine's a bit of a shitposty answer. Um, but I mostly use this as an excuse to because I needed to talk about this somewhere. But uh, my pick for this category is from One Punch Man, and it's uh, King Supreme Purgatorial Explosive Heat Wave Motion Gun. <laughs> <laughs> Not an actual attack, but it is one of those things where, um, I mean, K King in general is always like, really amazingly funny but i thought this year for one punch man in particular it's uh part of the reason i really wanted to talk about this was because like the multi-chapter build-up to the punchline that th that this attack is is like it's so good it's so well done uh just king constantly like you know failing upwards like the mr satan that he is because obviously everybody still thinks that like he's one of the strongest heroes, even though he's just a regular human being who likes video games. And the payoff to this is honestly so much better than I thought it was going to be. Because the way this pays off is that like King just kind of gets to the point where it's like, well, I, I guess I better just do it. And then he shouts out the attack. And luckily for him, uh, Garo comes to his senses uh, for at least for at least a minute so that he can take out all the other monster generals and he takes them out so fast that everybody thinks that King did it. <laughs> he literally does it in the time it took King to say the name of the pack. So <laughs> everyone really thinks he actually did something. Even he himself is like, what? Did I do something? Huh. It's like when Mr. Satan fired the gun at Boo, but and then Tien had shot him at the same time. Mr. Satan was like, oh my god, did that actually work? <laughs> of course not. Huh. I, I mean, if we really want to be technical... This maybe could have gone in our, like, favorite gag moments of 2021 later, but yeah. Yeah, this was my pick for that. I have backup picks that I'll mention okay. when we get to that, but this was <laughs> the top of my list of my favorite. Just like the fact that King was able to just bluff his way <laughs> in, <laughs> to convince Homeless Emperor and Black Summer Dizune to not attack him, to think that he was instead looking down at him and he knew secrets that he was tricking them. And so he, they just got like too afraid or too nervous to like attack him. And he just bought enough time doing that <laughs> to the point where <laughs> Homeless Emperor could get taken out. And then Black Summer Dizune is about to attack. And, and right when he's doing the Garo bank fight, it just concluded in Garo. <laughs> just took out him an evil empire before <laughs> that's right at the exact moment King had to like pretend to unleash an attack. It's just a really great sequence of chapters and really great payoff to the King gag. It's very funny, just like the monologues that Homeless Emperor Black Summer in like were going of like thinking of overthinking every little thing King was saying about like watching your step or like pesky humans or like stuff it's like it's just, I love how he faked them out so much and how he just was able to just psych them out without even like realizing what he was doing <laughs> oh man um Again, it's kind of shit posty, but like it genuinely just like like one of the best things I've ever seen. Just from this year of manga in general, it was just so good. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, but what about yours? I think number one for me was definitely Higuruma's deadly sentencing in Jujutsu Kaisen. And I'll talk more about Higuruma as a character later because he'll come up again. But just the concept of like Higuruma creating this domain in which he can just hold a trial with his opponent. And he basically like has evidence and a statement where he's like, you know, his opponent is going to be like... Uh, charged with a crime and they have three options of whether to you know be silent or confess or you know say a denial but and then in the trial like you know they'll be about but like he has Higuruma has evidence of the truth so it's like a big bluffing psychological game he's doing with his opponent to try and see what he'll do and how he'll try to make his case to say that he's innocent and yeah it's just a very interesting different type of power in the series that is used very cleverly in its first instance in order to put Itadori in a corner of like because with a guilty verdict like Kiguruma can set like a punishment and one of the punishments is like taking away someone else's curse uh, powers but like in the second instance it's used in an incredibly emotional way that was like one of the most like powerful affecting moments in JJK this year so yeah I mean I think deadly sentencing is just such an interesting idea an interesting application of a domain technique in the series so that immediately came to mind to me especially because I just love the character of Higuruma and what he represents so much and uh in terms of another power that I'm going to mention in another context later like Magnus power sharing flame chain and black clover ah. was also like a great <laughs> technique that was so surprising but so satisfying to see put into action as a way to literally level the playing field between a stronger opponent and a lower level opponent and just put everyone on equal terms and just Magno using that to beat like one of the most powerful opponents in the series uh, who has made a contract with one of those powerful devils in the series and just like evening out that way. But yeah, I'll make that I'll, I'll go into that later probably, but that was a great, great uh, technique. That one was very close to being my pick for favorite manga fights. You know, that's our next category, right? So I'll just say Magna versus Dante is my favorite fight of the year. It's a good, it's a good one. That, yeah, just uh, to me, it is like the perfect encapsulation of Black Clover's like overarching theme of like even people who are not born talented or gifted or born with power can rise up and challenge and prove themselves and overcome like people who are born with more privileges and more power. And Magna, perhaps the weakest black bull in terms of his power set and so long had been neglected as a as a character while other people have left him behind and leaped over him which had been explored before in the series with his feelings of you know regret that you know luck was chosen uh for the royal knights instead of him during the assault on the midnight sun headquarters stuff like you know we'd seen like magna kind of reconcile with the fact that he's not as strong enough to keep up with like his juniors and his peers in the way he wanted to. And so him developing a technique with Zerks, like a character is also like someone who is about like, you know, even the odds in terms of like people who are from a lower station be from high side of like class struggle between the Clover King and the Magic Knights. Like it that was so satisfying to see him use that against, like, again, the opponent that had put Yami and Asta in a corner and they just barely struggled to beat. 
Like, the fact that, da- like, Magna was able to, like, use his power on Dante and literally just beat him in a fist fight. Like, just through his own strength of will, his own endurance and determination, he leveled the odds to the point where he was able to just overpower Dante through his own strength. And I thought that was just such a great encapsulation representation of what Black Clover's overarching team is, just encapsulated in a fight more beautifully and brilliantly than any other example in the series. And even though, like, there were so many good fights and satisfying cathartic payoff fights in Black Clover this year, you know, the Noel and everyone versus Vanica and Jakula fight was a great payoff. And, you know, as a fan of Noel as a character, uh, her being my favorite in the series, I was also, I was incredibly satisfied with how that turned out. But the Magna versus Dante fight, I think, was just such a cut above, uh, in terms of, like, what it represents in the overall series and how it used what had up until that been being kind of like an underutilized character and just brought closure to his arc in such a satisfying way and just was a great way to take out like one of the most threatening villains in the series. I just really love that fight in every part of it. To me, there is just like no question in my mind. Like I have a short list of like a dozen or so fights that were really good this year, (laughs) but there was no doubt in my mind that top of the list was Magna versus Dante. That absolutely was my favorite of the year. Oh man, you know, like... The moment where Magna throws that initial fireball and it turns out that he used this new technique on him and that initial, like, punch that kind of, like, starts the fight, man, uh, that could have easily been, like, just one of my favorite moments this year, honestly. Yeah. Oh, my. The moment where both Luck and Asta arrive at the same time, like, both of the people that Magna both looked up to and was trying to catch up to uh, and considered his peers, like, both of them arrive at the same time to watch his victory against Dante. Just surprised, but also, like, you know, I'm happy to see their friend try. Like, it's just so good. Such a great, satisfying moment and we even got like a moment from uh from the sickle guy when because it turns out that like dante is getting back up and then jack the ripper yeah like yeah yeah jack the ripper is like saying hey you know let this guy have his win man like i appreciated that too that was a a good moment for jack the ripper like another character who had a connection to yami as a character and is also like another person who also like the Black Bulls and is a character who came from kind of like a lower class upbringing and then just worked his way up and acknowledge and respect like Magna for his own strength and ingenuity being a stronger point. So I really appreciate that a lot too. No, for sure. Man, you know, that that was a really good fight. But um, you know, th- this was really hard to try to pick like one fight that I really wanted to highlight. And I really had to think about this one because there there were a lot of good fights from this past year. But um, I think I'm going to go with uh, my, my pick is from Spy Family. And, uh, you know, initially I was like, oh, this one fight's pretty cool. But like, you know, I'm just going to say pretty much your fighting all of those assassins on the boat was like some of the best action from this year, quite honestly. Mm-hmm. I think specifically one that like initially kind of stuck with me was uh, your versus uh, Sickle and Chain Barnaby, which is a great name, by the way. Um, I I thought that initial fight was really good just because like, you know, Tatsuya Endo is just a great like action artist in general. But like, I I think yours fight with Barnaby in particular really shows off Tatsuya Endo's like ability to draw like, uh, I guess his speed. 
I guess, when it comes to his fights, because, like, you know, Barnaby's, like, just throwing the sickle around and everything and, like, constantly trying to hit Yor with it and Yor trying to, like, you know, dodge it every which way. And then, you know, having uh, Yor eventually, like, get her second wind, I guess, and, like, come after Barnaby with that initial shot of her, like, just coming in like like she's some kind of shadow demon or something. It's really scary. Um and her basically uh, catching the sickle and chain, like having it kind of like uh, like redirected back at Barnaby, him like dodging it, and then basically you're trying to like you know wrap wrap him up in his chain and like because you know everyone on the boat's also under the pretense that this is like a circus act or whatever. Uh, so I love the moment in particular where she kind of like hops down, gives a little bow, and you know Barnaby also looks like he's giving a bow, but he's clearly like knocked out or whatever. <laughs> Um, so that fight was really good, but I mean, like, re- really all of yours fights with the rest of the assassins are really good. Um, I'm trying to remember what chapter it was. I think it was, um, chapter two might actually be, like, some of the best of those fights. And, you know, I could have easily brought this up in, like, favorite art moments, but, like, I love the way Tatsuya Endo, like, while she's fighting all the assassins, like, we have all these match cuts from, like, the fireworks and the festivities on the boat to, like, you know, you're in the middle of all these fights or whatever. And I just love the way, like, those, like, parallels match up and work. You know, like, having, like, the fireworks explosions be lined up with, like, all the blood splatter going on at the top of the boat. Like, all that stuff is so good. Um, And, you know... You're getting to the point where, like, you know, she's really being, like, she goes through a lot in this, like, particular arc of Spy Family, and, you know, she gets, like, so much thrown at her and, like, so much damage caused to her. You know, it gets to a point where, like, you know, one good hit almost takes her out, and then she realizes, like, you know, she she kind of has the time to think about, like, why, why am I an assassin? Like, why am I doing this? Like, I feel like I've lost my way at some point. Like, this, this was all to protect my brother, but now he's an adult. But then she realizes, like, oh, no, I actually have, like, something to protect, basically her new family or whatever. And that kind of gives her her second win to take out the final assassin. Like, all of that stuff, I think, again, this was a really hard choice for me to make out of anything else I could have mentioned. But I think, like, just the action in Spy Family alone in 2021, I think, were some of my favorite fights from that year. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't want to go on too much longer, but, like... I, I do at least want to give like an honorable mention to um where is it to a fight in Mashal uh chapters fifty two to fifty four in particular with Mash's fight against Carpaccio the guy with the ability to basically like transfer pain or whatever um because that fight has a good like emotional hook because like you know because at first like uh Finn is the one who's kind of fighting against Carpaccio to basically like save the jewel or whatever that they have to like get in in the middle of like the game to try to play or whatever in order to win and like you know I, I think one of my favorite things about that fight is like uh the whole thing where it's like you know obviously Finn is like really weak or whatever compared to Carpaccio, but like, you know, MASH gives him props. Like, you know, even though Carpaccio, it's easy for him to fight because he can just transfer pain and he has like no ability to feel pain. Whereas like, you know, Finn's just basically a mostly regular guy. Like it's it's a lot more impressive that he has has the courage to stand up to somebody much stronger to him. And like MASH kind of like throws that back at Carpaccio. Like, well, now I'm a million times stronger than you. So knowing that, are you going to be able to stand up to me as bravely as Finn did? Because Finn is obviously more weaker than you. You know, that's just going to make you look bad, basically. <laughs> and, like, I just love the way the fight ends. Because, like, 
obviously it's one of those things where like mash keeps hitting carpaccio until his powers kind of fade and then it gets to a point where he takes his iron one and stretches it and makes a tennis racket out of it uh to basically uh, keep landing blows on his like giant statue thing that's giving him powers or whatever and like i just love how mash ends the fight with him like oh you want to feel pain well here it is and just <laughs> knocks him out with the tennis racket it's just it's just such a great like funny way for him to end the fight as, as with most fights in mashal it kind of ends with mash just brute forcing his way through with like the most like brutal way to take out somebody you know like it's just it's just so good that, that that's the one i kind of want to at least give like an honorable mention to but again it was really hard to pick good fights uh, to pick like one or two uh from this year in particular yeah there again my short list is like a dozen like, uh, I really loved Ayazumi Okun versus Turbo Granny, and the great, like, them, like, fighting her and her giant crab and their possessed people throughout the city, and it culminating on the fight on top of the train, where she leers her, like, Ayazumi lures Turbo Granny into, like, a barrier, like, set up by her grandmother, which allows her to exercise her. It's just so great. Mm-hmm. And, man, the sequence of chatters and, like, Maki just slaughtering the entire Zenin family into these guys was so good. Ooh, yeah. Like, so cathartic of, like, Maki just, like, taking out, like, all the Zenin family. It's just so good after, like, all the buildup, like, how is she <laughs> the black sheep in the street about the family? All the stuff with Nayoya, just her, like, slaughtering everyone. Which was so good. So cathartic. Yeah, from what I saw, that looked pretty badass, actually. Yeah, really, really awesome. Mm-hmm. But, um, so, I guess we can move on to favorite manga protagonists, and I, I, I want to ask one question, because I, again, the, like, th- this was kind of hard for me to pick, because it's, it's really hard for me to pick, like, a character that really stood out to me, like, specifically, for whatever reason, but, like, can, let, let me just ask this, was Noelle gonna be your pick? No, I mean, uh, she wasn't going to be my first pick, actually, so... Okay, well, I kind of figured, like, she was at least maybe going to be one of your top picks, maybe, because, honestly, like, I kept really trying to think about it, and, like, Noelle was the first person that came to mind. And again, this is coming from someone who had no strong feelings on Noelle when I first started reading Black Clover, but over time, she's become... I think she's become the best character? Um, She was always the best character in my eye. I mean, fair, but... She had a very satisfying payoff to her arc in the fight with Annika this year. No, holy shit. Like, I mean, honestly, because when it came to, like, favorite manga fights, like, I really thought about picking something from Black Clover at first. And, like, I kept thinking, like, as much as I really loved the fight between uh, Magna and uh, Dante, you know, that giant fight with um, Vanica and then um, Megacula, like, that was probably my favorite fight from Black Clover, honestly. Uh, just uh, personally speaking, but I think no- Noelle, I I I think she's going to be my pick for my favorite manga protagonist of 2021, mostly just because, like, you know, and we-, we talked about this before on the podcast here and there, but, like, you know, unfortunately, when it comes to, like, female character representation in Shonen Jump, I feel like most of the time the bar is very low, but Noelle, I think, is is... A rare example of a female character in a Shonen Jump manga that, like, you know, when given the chance, she's actually, like, you know, she's a great fighter, first off. And second, like, you know, I mentioned in our Shonen Jump retrospective, but, like, that moment where, like, Asta eventually comes in to kind of, like, help her out a bit 
and like provide emotional support, I was fully expecting for Asta to come in and just take over that fight, quite honestly, because th that's just something I kind of expect from like these sorts of like Shonen Jump manga, quite honestly, like that kind of thing happens all the time in One Piece. And it really gets an it really annoys the hell out of me, quite honestly, uh, when Luffy just kind of like takes over the fight, even though I know Luffy's the main character, and he's supposed to beat the bad guy, even when it doesn't make sense, but it's still annoying. And you know, I'm glad that didn't happen. Like, Black Clover, I will give props in that. You know, that didn't happen at all. Like, Asta was just there for emotional support and to give Noelle her second win in order to finish off the fight. And, yeah, I, like, she she had so many great moments. Like, I think, like, this is, like, her character's, like, come such a long way. Like, because we had moments with her, like, you know, her admitting to herself that she actually loves Asta and the moment where, you know, she kind of makes a call back to Asta's whole, like, you know, my magic is never giving up, which initially, when I first started reading Black Clover, was the kind of thing that I kind of rolled my eyes at, honestly. But nowadays, it's like, oh, oh, I get it. Oh, that's, that's like, cool, actually. Like, that callback was done so well in a way where it's like, oh, this, like, this, like, feels really genuine, like, because we also have that moment, that kind of back and forth between Megakula and Noel, where, like, Megakula's like, look, I don't understand humans at all, like, I don't understand why you guys don't just give up. And we have that thing where it's like, well, you know, obviously, the whole thing about humans is that, you know, obviously, we're powerless, but like, it doesn't really help to just like give up, like, we just have to keep going, basically. And it's like, yeah, like, it's, it's like such a simple idea, but like, it's so poignant. And like, it makes sense. Like, like, Black Clover is really good about like, stating certain ideas that like, are just kind of simple ideas, especially for a jump manga, but like, they they just work. I don't I don't know if I'm explaining myself very well. It's just I don't know. No Noel out of any one character this year, I think I don't know. Like I, I mostly went with my gut on this one. Like I really thought about oh what character stood out to me and my first thought was Noel and I just kinda went with it, honestly. Yeah, that's great. I love Noel. She's my favorite character back over. I was super satisfied with her fight Sarah, super satisfied that she was like voted the most popular character in the latest picture to popularity for this year. I think yeah. it's real deserved. Again, super surprising. Wouldn't have expected it. Yeah. But on the subject of, like, fantastic, like, female protagonists in Shonen Jump, like, for me, unquestionably, my favorite protagonist of the year was Fuko from Undead and Luck. Mm, yeah, yeah. Consistently in every arc, she has, like, great initiative and, like, everything she does and how she contributes to the story. But especially when she was kidnapped or she allowed herself to go with Under uh, as part of this negotiation trade. And then while she was with Under, she managed to figure out their plan and how they were going to combat Spring and relay that information to Andy. Like outwit all these other negators as part of Under and like make her way to relay the information to Andy and the others. That was a fantastic sequence of chapters. Mm -hmm. But then of course in the most recent chapters with her fight with Spring, uh, which also was up there as one of my favorite is up there as one of my favorite fight of the year like her way she is dealing with spring both with like empathy but also using her powers creatively and understanding the abilities of her friends and being able to use them creatively has been so fantastic so Fuko is like to me like the most compelling and resourceful protagonist of any manga this year who I just love seeing uh, thrive and like just love seeing like accomplish like super fantastic things I consider her like the lead protagonist of Undead and like even more so than Andy and I think she just had a fantastic year that has been just with so many satisfying moments just in every arc and especially in the spring arc. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good choice. Um, I mean, 
you know, I, I, I think I said it last year where it's like, oh, yeah, Andy and Fuko were like my favorite protagonists that year. And, uh, you know, I do agree. I think it, ha- it has gotten to the point where it's like, yeah, I think you could easily consider Fuko the lead protagonist of Undead Unluck. And I think it's very hard to argue against that, honestly. Do we have any honorable mentions we want to shout out before going to antagonist or? Um, I mean, initially, I also thought about highlighting your because, again, I really liked a lot of her kind of internal struggle with like her wondering like why she's still an assassin and whatever. But I, I already kind of went over that in my favorite fight. So I decided not to mention her. I think this was a very good year for your. Yeah, yeah. And a very necessary one to just have an arc about her. After, like, so long, the story was more focused on Lloyd and Anya. So it was very nice to just have, like, more of a character study of Yor and her reconciling what being an assassin really means to her and whether it's, like, something she still wants to keep doing. What are her real priorities now? What, how is that motivating what she's doing now? Yeah. I thought that was a really kind of fantastic uh, direction to explore with her character. So I appreciate that a lot. It's my family this year. But yeah, I, I want to give special mention in terms of, uh, you know, honorable mention to another character I really enjoyed this year. Like, so uh, to set this up, I will say, like, I listened to the, the weekly Monterey Get podcast. And as part of that, like, for listeners, they have a Google Doc set up where every week people can put in, like, what their favorite series was and what their favorite character was. And consistently for, like, Four weeks in a row, five weeks in a row, I had put Suika from Dr. Stone as my favorite character because of the arc where after the, you know, aftermath of like succeeding at like repetrifying everyone, you know, in order to stave off Stanley's attack, Suika awakens first and she has to figure out how to revive everyone with just the, you know, resources she has available. And it takes her years to do that. But we just follow Suika for a series of chapters on her own, struggling independently to just revive everyone. I thought that was fantastic for her. And even past that arc, like, she got involved with Chrome in trying to figure out how to create a return rocket ship for Senku and the gang. And that was a really good extension of, like, her interest in science you know, having deepened in her trying to uh, depetrify everyone, like continuing on to help with that project. So I thought this was a really strong and compelling year for Suika as a character that I want to give mention to because she had like just a fantastic string of chapters to herself and then continued to have some great character stuff later on in the year. Mm-hmm. No, Suika definitely had a, a, a very interesting role to play in Dr. Stone for a bit. Um, I will say that unfortunately for me, again, I mentioned on the job retrospective, but um, I feel bad for not following that week to week because I think by the time I started catching up to Dr. Stone, it was one of those things where it's like, I, I kind of know how this is going to shake out. Like, of course, they're not all going to like die forever or whatever. But you know, so, you know, I, I that that's totally on me. I think that kind of hurt my experience a little bit because I, I do regret not following that portion of the story week to week because I think I would have been so much more enthralled with what was going on. But it's it's still it's still a good portion of the series from this year, though. Absolutely. I think it still holds up on its own. It's like a great character stuff, character moments from her. But yeah, absolutely. Just following that week to week was super exciting. And super cool. So yeah, there are a lot of other characters on my short list, but we mentioned two each, and I think that's a good selection of characters that had some really fantastic stuff this year. Mm-hmm. So I guess we should move on to favorite manga antagonist of 2021. Um, and here I'll I'll let you go first because I I have to admit I have like a few picks, but I actually haven't settled on like a main pick yet, and I'll explain why in a bit. But I'm actually really curious what your picks are. 
Okay, so, and defining this as antagonist, that's like a force that was antagonistic to characters more so than an outright villain. For sure, yeah. Top of my list is Higuruma and Jujutsu Kaisen. Uh, this is my, definitely like one of my favorite new characters of any series this year. Uh, Higuruma is just such a fascinating character as just this kind of like worn down lawyer operating under the Japanese judicial system who is like, tr- you know, trying to be he serves as a public defender uh, in criminal trials, and he's trying to defend, like, these people who, in the Japanese judicial system, are basically assumed guilty by default. And so he always has this uphill struggle in trying to, you know, clear his client's name and, like, get them acquitted and get a not guilty verdict. And he has failed, like, time and time again, but, like, he just clings on to this hope of justice. But then, like, you know, in the story, like, there's a turning point where he ends up awakening his own cursed powers, and he has lost fate in the Judaism, so he's, like, doing it by his own hands, judging people with his deadly sentencing power, and he's kind of, you know, embraced, like, taking the lives of people he finds guilty. Like, he's no longer concerned about it, so he's able to accrue a lot of points in the culling game. And so he fights with Itadori, and, you know, he's not very receptive to cooperating with Itadori's request to share points with him because, you know, he sees the potential in the culling game. He sees the potential in, like, what he can do under the conditions of the culling game. But then he fights Itadori, and of course, as I mentioned before, through his sentencing, like he does manage to trick Itadori into getting a guilty verdict in the first round of the sentencing. But then when Itadori realizes, oh, with this power, I can just ask for a retrial, Itadori asks for a retrial, and then the second charge Itadori is accused of is said by the sentencing is like, were you involved in the Shibuya massacre? And Itadori, of course, feeling guilt for that, he confesses to that, but that shakes Higuruma up because Higuruma had the evidence that would have exonerated Itadori. Because Higuruma knows that Itadori wasn't the one who's actually responsible and he's just like, you know, so upset and it just kind of shakes him that Itadori would confess to and feel guilty for something he didn't do. And that kind of almost restores his fate in people. And stars his fate in wanting to see the good in other people and believe in them. And so he ends up undoing his deadly sentencing and he ends up agreeing to help cooperate with Dory by sharing points. So he ends up going off as well anyway, but I'm sure he's willing the story isn't done. But to me, Hiroruma is just like one of the most fascinating and interesting and nuanced characters in any manga this year. And I'm just so curious to see where his story is going to continue to go, where his role of the story is going to continue to be. But, like, his entire, like, backstory that set him up is, like, you know, we'll get to that, but that's one of my favorite chapters of the year. And then the entire fight he has with Itadori, and then the character conflict there is just so compelling as well. So, absolutely my favorite antagonist of the year. Mm, man. I'm, again, kicking myself that I haven't got on the Jujutsu Kaisen train yet. One day I will. Because from what, I, from what I've heard about the past year of Jujutsu Kaisen, like, it, it just sounds like it just gets better and better, honestly. Um, but yeah, here. So bear with me for a bit, because like I mentioned earlier, I have like a few small picks, but like, it was really hard for me to really kind of land on like, uh, like my top pick. Because originally, I thought about going with Kawashita from uh, Yosakura Family. I think the reason I didn't go with him is because, like, he kind of has the same quality that I really like about, like, All for One from My Hero Academia, where it's like, he's he's a villainous character that basically sees other people as tools at his disposal, because there were a lot of really cool moments like that with uh, Yozakura family this year. 
especially with like uh the arc where they did like the raid on their on Tom Popo's hideout or whatever. Uh, a lot of great moments where like uh one of his subordinates will get taken out. You know, he just won't really like bat an eye at all. It's just like, well, another tool gone. Can't use that one. Like it's just, you know. So I, I did really go with him because it's like, well, I like him for the same reason I like all for one, and that's not really like interesting or whatever. But I he's still pretty effective at that in particular. And then um I thought about Ashikaga Takauji. I guess the main bad guy at this point from Elusive Samurai, where it's like, he's clearly going to be like, probably the big bad that like, Tokiyuki's going to have to face off against eventually. And he clearly is like, super, like, he's very skilled at the sword. Uh, there was a moment in, um, I forget which chapter it was in particular, where we kind of got to spend time with him and like, his band of goons or whatever. Uh, where, like, he can very easily take out multiple men at once, and he clearly has, like, a lot of charisma that, in a very Matsui way, is uh, represented by slimy tentacles caressing everybody that everybody around him or whatever. Like, some of that stuff was, like, super creepy or whatever. But he hasn't really gotten to the point in the story where, like, he's done a lot yet. I think we're still setting up for more with him later, so, like, I wasn't very, like, confident in that pick either. So far, the one I'm, like, the most confident in, and this might be a weird choice, but I don't know, is uh, President Ugly from One Punch Man. <laughs> um, and hear me out, because, like, I think out of all the, out of the, like, main generals of, like, the Monster Association or whatever, he might be my favorite in concept, because, like, I just, I really like the idea of, like, this big, huge, ugly, strong guy who, like, gets his power from, like, all these negative emotions, like pettiness or whatever, and he channels that into, like, his strength. Like, li literally, he has attacks that are, like, face destruction punch, where, like, he'll just, like, literally his punches will, like, just destroy whoever he's punching. Like, that moment where, like, he's, he's like, fighting against, like, a Mai Mask in particular, I thought he, like, straight up killed him. Like, yeah. A a a any fight with him is, like, super brutal and, like, I'm, like, genuinely afraid of, like, for whoever, like, has to, like, go up against him because he's just, like, he's just genuinely, like, a really, like, terrifying character. Yeah. I, I like the moment where he got eaten by his own monster that he got, like, broke out of that, but he's, like, all disintegrated and stuff. Oh, man. <laughs> but then he gets, like, like, his own, like, acid power oh, that God. he's against people. So I just like how he just gets more and more twisted and somehow gets more powerful the more, like, hideous and malformed he becomes. Yeah, like, he's just one of those guys where, like, he's a cockroach. Like, you just, you can't get rid of him. Like, anything you throw at him almost kind of makes him stronger in a way. Like, it's like you said, like, you know, all that acid and stuff, like, it doesn't kill him. It just makes him stronger. And that's really terrifying. And, like, it's just, like, it's such a simple concept, like, the idea of, negative emotions being manifest in this one uh, one ugly bastard that's even too ugly for the ugly bastard tag you know like it's just i don't know i it, it again it's, it's a simple concept but i think like it's done very well so i don't know i'm i'm kind of leaning towards having him be like my top pick for my favorite antagonist uh from 2021 mm -hmm. i think those are some uh, good choices yeah Honorable mentions for me would include Spring from Undead and Luck, 
because he's such a fun character with like creative powers. I love the games that he was playing Fuko, but also that he has like this, you know, tragic undercurrent that he's kind of forgotten because of the manipulations of God about how he like met the first Ishin, who was like the first person who like reached out to him and befriended him. And then of course he tragically ended up killing him when God like kind of took him over and made him go amok. But like, you know, the spring arc has recently come to a conclusion. There was a very cathartic, sweet conclusion to that relationship and that history but also yeah it's just like a fun and also very compelling uh nuanced character of like someone who really just wanted to be able to spend time and have friends and interact with humanity but then ultimately was ostracized and kept separate and then kind of lost sight of like what he really wanted and then gets reminded of that and then ultimately there's no other choice but to put him to rest in order to you know, stop him and stuff. But like, uh, you know, he at the very end, he has finally, you know, gotten what he really wanted all along. He's able to like party and have play and have fun with people who see him for who he is. And that was such a very nice, sweet moment. And uh, I, he was just a great character. And I think David did an amazing job with translating his haiku speech pattern that he had for most of his experiences until late in the series. Because that was super clever. Uh, that's like a fun a quirk to the character. And it was super well executed in the localization. So I really, really appreciated that. And then you mentioned Kawashita from Music Hero Family. But yeah, I thought he was a good villain. But I want to acknowledge this uh, from Yosukura family, Sabomi, the first head of the Yosukura family. I think she's a very interesting character, antagonistic force in the series. As, you know, she has a part of herself that is like kind of acting against herself and what her wants and what she wants in order to like preserve her own like life almost she has like kind of conflicting internal goals and she has resurrected all the other family heads like one by one to serve her purposes and is like targeting Mutsumi. And I think, like, she's a very interesting kind of uh, overarching antagonist of hers who was, like, was involved and manipulated Kawashita is now, like, reviving all the previous family hands. And I just find the interest... I just find the history of the Osakura family and the history of Sibomi the character very interesting to explore the further on we go in the Osakura family. So I found her really intriguing. I think she uh, stands out to me. And uh, the plot stuff involving uh, the Yosegar family history has been really good. So, yeah, those are some highlights I wanted to mention as well. Mm-hmm. You know, actually, I want to use that as a transition into favorite manga moments of 2021, because I think the moment I really want to highlight is also from Yozakura family. Mm. Uh, so I want to talk about chapter 86 in particular, which kind of takes place right after the big raid on Tanpompo. And it's basically the chapter where I, you know, the the, the little like dog girl. I, for, I forget what animal she is. Yeah. Part of her DNA is like the same species as Goliath, their pet dog. That's right. That's right. I totally forgot. Um, Yeah. Basically, at this point, she doesn't have anywhere to go because she basically lived with the people at Tanpopo, especially with uh, Mizuki in particular, who died in the previous arc. And, uh, and she doesn't have any choice but to kind of live with the Yozakura family as kind of an orphan. And, you know, it's kind of cute or whatever, like, you know, Tayo and uh, Mutsumi have their little fun kind of spending time with her, kind of like they have a kid now or whatever, and that's really cute. But uh, the chapter kind of gets into this thing that, like, I wasn't really expecting where, like, basically I gets to the point where, like, you know, she she tries to run away because, you know, she's still she's still feeling the effects of, like, losing Mizuki in the last arc, and she's basically afraid to, like, open up herself and uh, find any other family because she's afraid that, like, she'll lose them again. Um, and it gets to a point where uh, Tayo kind of goes after her 
and, you know, Tayo being in the same position as she was years ago, basically being a new member of the Yozakura family after his family died is like, hey, look, I I understand what you're going through. It's that thing where it's like, well, you know, they, they treat her like a member of the family, but like it's actually going to take time for her to kind of like open up and like kind of get used to the idea of these new people being her new family. So Tyle's like, hey, we could be friends first. Like, I want you to be my friend. Like, you know, kind of kind of take like little baby steps into maybe becoming family with them. And, you know, th- th- that that's something that really resonates with me because, you know, I really resonate with the idea of like, in particular of like, you know, because I I've known people in my life who like, you know, are like super overly familiar with you or whatever. And like, just kind of call you family. And that really gets under my skin because it's like, no, if family is not just like a word you like throw around or whatever, that's that's something that you really have to earn and build up to. And I thought that Yozakura family kind of exploring that in particular was really interesting because I just wasn't really expecting that. And I, I think it explores that idea in a way that's really real and kind of relatable, honestly. Like, of course, you know, I's not just gonna open up to them and isn't gonna feel like she can just be family with these new people she has to live with, you know? Like, she still has to get over the death of Mizuki, someone who basically looked after her her entire life, especially after, you know, being rescued from an abusive household or whatever. So, you know, of course, it's gonna take time for her to open up, and I just, I just thought that was a really sweet moment. And, not even like the only moment in Yuzakura family I could have talked about. Like I think I mentioned in our jump retrospective, the little talk that Futaba and Kengo have about like when Kengo, his complexion starts going to shit basically because like, you know, he's worried about Futaba and Futaba's like, hey, look, you're just as worried as like everyone else is about me, you know? So like, you don't have to hide it or whatever. Like just really have a real like nice, like heart to heart with him about like, him not having to just like hide how he feels you know like it's okay for him to worry and like show his worry in front of everyone else like just just in general i think yozakura family had a lot of really great sweet family moments amongst the actual yozakura family it's just really nice yeah yozakura had a lot of really strong moments here and definitely like that exploration of like eyes trauma and then tayo understanding like kind of comforting her and reassuring her was like super moving stuff mm-hmm for me, like my favorite moment, and my short list for this is pretty long because there's, <laughs> there were a lot of good moments, but this is another one where for me, like the moment that I want to mention kind of, it was unquestionable what the best moment of the year was or the, like the most memorable moment of the year was. And that was everyone in class 1A confronting and reaching out to Deku, trying to get him to come back with them. Oh. <laughs> everyone saying like how they inspire them and what he means to them and then it culminating with like them throwing Ida to catch up to Deku like you know symbolically proving like yes we can keep up with Deku we can be fight alongside you and then Ida reaching out his hand to Deku and holding it and then repeating like what Deku had said to him when Deku had helped him in the stain arc, like giving help that's not asked for is what makes a hero. And then Deku breaking down in tears. Like that is like the most satisfying moment in terms of a culmination uh, of like the relationships Deku has formed with every member of class 1A throughout the story. And in particular, call back to this very particular powerful moment and example of heroism and a message that Deku had said to Ida long time ago that is now coming back that he needs to hear in this moment. And it was just so 
perfectly uh, so wonderfully executed that absolutely atop my list but to be honest this was uh in a time of mhj chapters that just had a string of amazing moments because right alongside that is of course like the long-awaited moment of bakugo apologizing to deku for how he had treated him in the past acknowledging like why he treated him was because of his own weakness his own resentment and then just acknowledging that things need to change between them and they need to he needs to be more emotionally open and honest with him and that he wants to stand by him as a friend and just the fact that during this moment where Bakugo is like going through this confession of his apology we are cycling through Deku and Bakugo at different ages like we are seeing them from children as they grow into like who they are now in these series of power loops. And not only that, but the detail of Deku, you know, his eyes have been whited out, like, into entirety at the beginning of the, of the chapter. It's just, he yeah, has his blank eyes, no pupils, but like, truly sequels of panels as Bakugo continues to talk to him and confess to him, like, his eyes, his pupils kind of start to come back and he starts to gain his sense of self again. And he finally does do that after Bakugo, like, finally says he's sorry. And it's just, a very incredible moment, like visually and also just in terms of this huge payoff between this reckoning between Bakugo and Deku that was like 300 chapters in the making. Oh, man. Uh, and incredibly satisfying stuff. And again, like, uh, yeah, this was just a period of imagery that just has a string of uh, incredible moments. Because, like, I can mention, you know, the uh, Achaku standing up for Deku to all the crowd of people who were, uh, like, angry, afraid of, like, letting him into UA and whatnot. But, like, yeah, it was just <sighs> a lot of incredible, uh, very satisfying, cathartic, emotional moments in energy. But, like, those two, and especially just, like, the, the Class 1A reaching out to Deku, and that's at the very top for me. But, yeah, you know, even though in, like, the Jump Retrospective podcast, I mentioned there were parts of MHA that I wasn't satisfied with, like, in the previous year, like, this sequence of chapters of class 1a reaching out to deku was like easily some of the strongest sequences of chapters of manga last year and also in the entirety of the series uh and it was beautifully done oh no i mean look that that the, the chapter with ochiko on top of the building making her speech you know and ending with you know this place is his hero academy like that that was very close to being like my favorite chapter of this year honestly it's probably like an easy second Maybe. Yeah, it's it's a really great moment. It's just, it was a really great series of chapters. This entire class 1A, bringing Deku back to senses and bringing Deku like, back to UA is a really great stretch of the story. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, we're actually going to be introducing a new category that I thought would be good uh, to kind of be a palate cleanser, because usually when we talk about our favorite manga moments, they're usually very tear-jerky, maybe a little heavier, depressing. So... I thought it would be cool to kind of lighten things up right afterwards with our favorite manga gag moments of 2021. And uh, I can talk about mine really quickly because uh, I kind of talked about it in our show in a jump retrospective. I mean, first off, I will totally admit I almost just picked entire chapters of uh, of Witch Watch um, <laughs> to talk about. But I really tried to rein myself in be like, no, no, no. It's our favorite moments. <laughs> Can't count entire chapters of Witch Watch as uh, moments. It, because if I did, I would have just counted the Ottoman chapter of, of Witch Watch. Because that was easily like the most like skip dance chapter in Witch Watch's run I think we've seen so far. <laughs> but uh, okay, so again, talked about it in the jump retrospective, but I just wanted to say it again. Uh, and 
You know, something else I'm also kind of afraid of with this, like, category in particular is that I'm really sorry if, like, for the next couple years we do this category, it just becomes, like, our favorite moments from Roboco because I'm, I feel like that's probably what's going to happen. Pray hoping that Roboco continues to run so long that we can continue to bring up amazing moments for it for years to come. I think it's got a good lifespan, but I guess we'll have to see. Um but yeah, so my, my the moment I want to talk about is from Roboco, and it's specifically from the chapter where Roboco starts, like, doing fortunes or whatever. And uh, it's specifically the moment where she gives uh, Gachi Gorilla his fortune, and he kind of, like, takes a look at it, and then he starts crying. <laughs> and then um, he gives it to Bondo to take a look at, and it just says, ook. And then uh, Gachi Gorilla is like, oh, man, the final stanza really got me, and... Uh, Bono's like, well, which one? Like, the K? Like, I don't know what you're talking about. And, you know, that moment in particular really got a good laugh out of me. Uh, I think it might actually be the biggest laugh I got out of Roboco. Um, but <laughs> it's just even funnier because obviously, like, Bondo doesn't, like, believe these fortunes or whatever until they basically start coming true. And then uh, the, the the last, like, really good punchline uh, during that moment in particular is, like, when he kind of looks at Gachi Gorilla and he just says, ook, and he was like, oh, the, oh that fortune was right. Like... <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to just come back up, and I think it was even funnier the second time, quite honestly. So, I guess those punchlines from that chapter of Roboco, I think, got the biggest laugh out of me out of anything in Roboco. And Roboco was really good this year, too, so that's saying something. Yeah, no, Roboco had some really great gags this year. I think, for me, if I were to choose something from Roboco, I feel like the entire conceit of the Chimera and parody... (laughs) Just for, like, Bondo forgetting his, like, underwear because oh, there's a break issue of Jump. And just, like, everyone trying to prevent him from seeing, like, Maria or something. It's, like, very funny. It's just the terror parody of, like, the Cabrera and narration of, like, narrating every action people did. And of course, the specific direct parodies of moments from that arc is very funny. Oh, man. And it's such a good, like, sequel chapter to that previous one where they were trying to put on Bondo's pants and everything. Because, I mean, look, that first chapter where they did that stuff and it ends with like the obvious reference to that double page spread of slam dunk with like sakuragi and rukawa high-fiving or whatever that was already super good but like again this is a good sequel chapter just in general with it being kind of a sort of a, a again a parody of the chimera and of hunter hunter i think even like weirdly like ups the stakes a little bit and makes it feel even more epic which is pretty great um no th- that chapter was really good to mention moment from a series besides Robocop. But yeah, as far as Witch Watch goes, like I mentioned in the Jump Retrospective, but you know, I know some people did not like the Dengeki Millen chapter because, you know, it was very verbose, very wordy. <laughs> but I still find the panel, the visual of Dengeki Millen, like doing the Matrix pose and like, <laughs> while like just reflecting on Urshino's manga and like trying to think of going through and just ridiculously, meticulous detail, all sorts of criticism she has, but also her thoughts about how to best communicate those criticisms to Urashino is very funny and especially because it just ends with her saying that to her that it's very well made the follow-up panel it's just she goes on this big monologue overthinking how she's going to respond to her criticism and then she just tells her it's what like just that vision
occasionally just that follow-up is just very funny. And of course, the, the continued jokes of that chapter later that she sends her in her Nageki Melon online persona just a big DM of like every all his helpful constructive criticism that's like a novel length thing. And the fact that Ace had to genuinely translate <laughs> all of that and oh, man. The, the, the words that were hidden behind word balloons was amazing. And so I love that. It was very funny. And uh, to mention some other things that I thought was funny, I, in general, I think all the dinosaur gags in one piece of like, oh, this is how dinosaurs really work. And it's just like some ridiculous thing, like the Triceracopter uh, Sakaki has where he's like, he just spins his like Triceratops like shield thing and it's just he's, he can fly with that or like the Snakosaurus that queen like he can just shoot himself out of his body as a brachiosaurus and it's like oh that's just just the fact how oda plays with like dinosaur biology in ridiculous ways uh and like tries to convince like the reader that in the one piece about this is how dinosaurs actually work is very funny and yeah i those were great moments uh, but i will once again, reiterate that King just bluffing and stalling Sermatazoon and Homeless Emperor was easily the, the funniest moment uh, of anything this year for me. That was pretty good, yeah. Oh, man. But, uh, yeah, I guess we can move on to our favorite manga chapters of 2021. Yeah, one of the big ones, one of the big categories. Um, You can go first if you want. For me, this is kind of unquestionably in my mind. Just look back by Dasuke Fujimoto. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> as a single chapter, as a single installment of a manga release this year, uh, as a serialization, uh, or, you know, as part of like the serialized releases, like this was easily like my favorite chapter. It's like almost cheating because it is like almost a volume length chapter in a standalone one shot thing, but like it, it counts. No, oh, yeah, yeah. It's released. And no, absolutely. Like as we discussed it before, it's just a beautiful meditation about the struggle for creating art and like trying to better yourself as an artist and then finding a kindred spirit and community and fellow artists and then encouraging your growth and also inspiring you as well as, you know, having comic and fans are like wanting to catch up and be as good as them. But then also it turns into a story about grief and a commentary on the Kyoani fire and losing so many incredibly creative people that inspired you and you know the struggle to keep going but then the importance of like keeping going in respect to their memory respect to that everything that together completely you know you work together with someone with uh, to achieve your dreams to work towards something you believed in and you know even though it's such a struggle to create art oftentimes even though it's so it can be painful, it can be arduous and exhausting. Ultimately, you just keep doing it because you believe in it. And it is something that continues to drive you forward. It's something you're passionate about, something that you have a connection with, most importantly, to other people. It's true. And that was just, like, beautifully and poignantly explored in this story. And absolutely, it's, like, my favorite single chapter installment of manga that was released this year. But to mention honorable mention, you know, because I brought up Higuru several times, I will mention like chapter 159 of Jujutsu Kaisen Judgment, the chapter that is just solely dedicated to exploring Higuru and introducing him as a character. Just the, It's just a chapter 
just exploring this public defender in the Japanese judicial system, trying his best to maintain fate and justice, trying his best to help his client, help someone he believes truly is innocent, and give him a fighting chance in the system. And ultimately, that system just letting him down. Even after this moment of relief where uh, after the first hearing, they are able to get a not guilty verdict. The second time, you know, there's no additional evidence. There's nothing damning. It's a completely like half-assed case the prosecution makes. But even so, the system judged the defendant guilty from the start and he's sentenced guilty. And then just Higuruma consistently in his career having to deal with his clients being upset at him and just feeling this guilt and just feeling this kind of anger of like just the system not working in favor of the weak in favor of the righteous. And then him that finally like snapping inside of him, waking in his own, you know, curse technique. And his deadly sentencing power. That was such a great exploration and commentary just on the Japanese judicial system. And a great character study of easily one of the most compelling new characters uh, in Jujutsu Kaisen and any manga last year. And it's just, it was absolutely a fantastic read that just, I read several times because I was just so enthralled and enamored with it when it first came out. And again, as I mentioned several times before, like Higuruma is just such a fascinating, compelling character that I'm, I'm super excited to see his involvement in the story going forward. But I was so satisfied with everything involving him that in this year. And he was such a late addition to the story this year. He only was introduced in like September or something, that chapter that came out. And it was like already just in how briefly he appeared in this single chapter and then his fight with Adori. Like he made such a great impression. And yeah, this was a fantastic single chapter of any manga this year. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. No, it, it sounds really great, honestly. But uh, I guess just to talk about my favorite manga chapters real quick. Um, so again, this was this was another hard choice for me because I definitely have my short list of ones that like of chapters that really stood out to me this year. But I don't know, man. I just the more I thought about it, the more I kept coming back to it. Black Clover chapter three thirteen. Yeah, on my short list too. <laughs> but it's so good. Uh, specifically, the chapter that's uh, kind of explores Yami in particular uh, from his time, you know, coming to the Clover Kingdom and. Uh, rising in the ranks and becoming his own like knight soldier or whatever and like starting his own group with the black bulls and everything and uh, coming to the realization that like you know the whole reason he started up the black bulls was so that way he he had a place for basically outcast to kind of come together because you know he's essentially kind of one as well uh, amongst his fellow peers and everything but uh you know the more people he started gathering up and the more established the black bulls became you know he starts to slowly realize like oh like i don't know if i was giving you guys a home so much as you guys were giving me a home like a place where i belong and you know we have that great moment where you know all of the black bulls come in to rescue him and yami's like you guys really like me that much and they just you know no bullshit just like as genuine as possible they just tell them that they love their captain they love yami and you know that can you could tell that like that really touches him and he just says right back you know hey right back at you guys you know like it's it's just so genuine and like you know i i I, it was one of those things where it's like i saw that moment tweeted around a lot and like actually experiencing it was just like wow (laughs) again it's i've gotten to the point where like and I hate to beat a dead horse, but like I used to really not like Black Clover. I used to really hate it. And now I've gotten to the point where it's like those moments really work on me because it's like, oh, I care about these characters now. How did that happen? <laughs> you know, it made me kind of tear up a little bit. 
Tabata is just, you know, he's he's not afraid to have these characters show like real genuine emotion towards each other and to show how much these characters like actually really love each other and how much of a camaraderie they have with each other. Like it's just it's just really nice to see. Yeah. Man, I one panel especially that I loved in that chapter was just everyone's comments. Every each one of the Black Bull's comments on Yami and Starlight coming to rescue him is just like one vertical panel that it's kind of like fades into like it starts with like the stuff at the very top like kind of fade like uh, fading in. So that also struck out to me because of how difficult it must have been to letter oh, to yeah. capture that effect. But man, just that panel, that just all the messages like all the Black Bulls had for Yanni, like leading up to that moment where they bust into rescue. And of course, like that moment of like them saying, yes, sir, we love you. It's just so satisfying. So that entire chart was just a great cathartic encapsulation to like how Yami had affected each of these characters' lives and just the relationships he had with all the characters series and yeah like you said like he he gave them a place to belong but then they also in turn gave him a place of belonging to it's just so satisfying Mm -hmm. i mentioned earlier that i think an easy second pick would have been my hero academia chapter 324 with ochako giving her big speech and everything that you know like that felt like such a great culmination of like a great strings of my hero academia chapters from the past year just like literally every week Every week was a good chapter for, I think, like a solid like month or two, quite honestly. Like, it just it just felt like the series couldn't miss. But we mentioned that already, and I, I will give like one more honorable mention to Magu-chan chapter 43. Mm. And that's the chapter where, uh, at first, Magu and all the other gods of destruction seem kind of like standoffish and kind of like they just want to be left alone. Like, they're kind of coming off as kind of distant especially towards Ruru, and, you know, she starts to feel bad, and, you know, she catches Magu kind of leaving out somewhere, you know, in the middle of the night, and, you know, she she's afraid that, like, this new friend that she made is gonna leave her life like her dad did, and, uh, you know, she eventually finds out that, like, everybody was trying to throw her a surprise birthday party, and, like, you just have that moment where, like, she just starts, like, tearing up and bawling, and it's like, that moment fucking killed me. I'm Man. And, you know, Magu-chan was also kind of weird for me this year because, like, I think I also mentioned in the retrospective where it was like, you know, when I started catching up on it, it had been so long since I kind of, like, read it that, like, I wasn't entirely sure if I still liked the series as much as I used to or not. But I think that chapter really pulled me back in. And I was like, oh, okay, no, this is good. Like, <laughs> every once in a while, like, Magu-chan is really good at giving you, like, that gut punch and, like, really just, like, hitting you really hard with, like, these really sweet tear-jerking moments. And I think, and I mean, uh, the series had, like, a few of them here and there that were really good. But, like, I think that one was, like, my favorite one. Like, the one that, like, hit me kind of the hardest, honestly. So, that entire chapter was, like, a great setup and payoff. Yeah, Mako-chan has a lot of really sweet moments in it. Oftentimes, it's very charming, but when it does pull at the heartstrings, you know, it really is effective at it. Oof, yeah. But, yeah, that was a very sweet chapter. If I can just name one more honorable mention that I really do want to name because it was a chapter that honestly like really stuck and resonated with me because it reflected uh, some experiences I went through this year and that was a chapter Kubo won't let me be invisible chapter 94 night and letter and really this is a combination of a sequence of chapters in which Shiraishi was for Kubo's birthday trying to you know figure out like what kind of gift to get her like what should they should do for their birthday like what, is it okay for him to just take her out 
and have fun is that something you want to do it was just a very sweet sequence of chapters where he you know is taking Kubo out uh on her birthday and is like treating her and is trying to find opportunities to like give her like this gift that he got her and then he ends up doing that and it's like she really likes it and it's like you know because he remembered that she loved rabbits he got her stuff rabbit and it really you know she enjoyed the day but like this just gave her an extra pep in her stuff like her sister notices when she gets home that like Shiraichi not only remembered something she mentioned she liked but also like gave her like this gift before like they parted ways before she came home but that's not the end of that and that's this chapter that I'm talking about because Shiraishi gave her the gift but he forgot to give her the letter uh, that he had written also to give to her with the gift and so he's feeling awkward about oh is it now a good time to like in the middle of the night like go out and like you know deliver this letter to her but then like he thinks about it and realizes like you know there's still time and I'd regret it and it's a really the page of him just like running through the streets at night to Kubo's is like very striking to me. But the moment that really gets me is like, you know, he, he texts uh, Kubo to like come out and meet him. And then he like just gives her the letter and then she reads the letter and it's just a message of letter. It's like so simple and sweet, but it just, it's like him thanking her for talking to him and that there's so many things that, you know, he'd never experienced before happen when he's with her and it's fun and he really enjoyed the day. And it's just such a simple, sweet moment, but like it, it really means a lot to us a lot because Kubo, you know, she was someone who really knows Shiraishi and like went out the way to talk to him when like in early on the series, like he was just invisible to people around him. And because, you know, she reached out to him and spent time with him, like it was a big moment that like Shiraishi has accumulated a friend group like that he can rely on and talk to. Like he was able to talk to one of his friends before, like for advice of like what gift to get Kubo. And before that, and there was a big moment in chapters four where like he's able to invite everyone over and he's introduces them all to his mom as his friends. And it's such an emotional moment, but it really means a lot of love. like him just writing this simple message, just thanking her for like, you know, being a part of his life and for the experiences that they shared together. And the reason that this chapter and the sequence chapters, you know, really stuck with me so much is because, you know, for Christmas, I kind of had a very similar experience with like my best friend. It's like, I just, you know, I really put a lot of thought and a gift I wanted to get for them. And I, you know, also wrote them a letter that was also just had the message of like, just thanking them for being my friend and just being so happy that they're part of my life and that they, you know, are thriving and happy and in a great place in their life. And so this chapter just hit me very personally and, and just the right sweet spot of like reflecting kind of a real experience and real feelings that I just had felt in just every step of like, you know, thinking about how I just wanted to just thank them and how I, what I wanted to give them, what I wanted to say to them and what I did end up writing to them. And I, I, I mean, wrote more than Shiraji ended up writing to Kubo, but just it's just so simple what he wrote, but it just really sticks with me. And re- to me, it just really resonated and meant a lot and just made me reflect upon my own experience and really moved me. And I, I just really love this sequence of chapters and this chapter in particular and this moment in particular, I just loved. So I want to acknowledge this chapter absolutely as, a, as one of my favorites of the year because of 
how it how really uh, reflected upon something I went through personally and how much I appreciate that. No, that sounds really touching. Um, eventually, I'll get back to Kuba Won't Let Me Be Invisible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's a very sweet series. Um, but why don't we move on to our favorite manga series finale of 2021? And um, I can kind of get mine out of the way really quickly because a-, a lot of the stuff I've been reading hasn't really ended. I mean, so so he- he- here's the thing. Uh, I am going to be talking about a canceled Shonen Jump series real quickly. One that I went out of my way to read the ending of, which is kind of a big deal for me because for, for those who frequently listen to the podcast, we constantly cover canceled Shonen Jump series in our Jump Stop podcast and Obviously, now that we have more access to those, uh, they've kind of built up and uh, into a big list of uh, titles that we'll get to eventually. So when I kind of go through a thing of like, because I constantly pick up and drop jump because of life and everything, and I, it's hard for me to keep up with multiple series and everything. Um, so usually when I'm trying to keep up with the thing and it gets canceled and I'm like behind on it, if, I, if I'm behind on it enough, I'm just like, well, we're going to podcast about it eventually. Like, I'll, I'll just get back to it you know, when we get around to podcasting about it or whatever. That's just how I work anyway. Um, But this was the only canceled Shonen Jump series from 2021 where I heard so much about the ending and I was so curious about it that I went back and actually finished it and that's Hunter's Guild Red Hood. I think out of any canceled Shonen Jump series from 2021, I think, at least in my circles anyway, this seemed like the one that got the most discussion because... Uh, I'm sure people who are keeping up with it weekly were uh, very interested in uh, the kind of like sort of meta direction that the series was taking by the end and how basically uh, the mayor character in the story is sort of an avatar for Kawaguchi in that moment to just be like, you know what? Let's just stop. We're just going to stop the story right here. And, you know, I I think there's a lot of like conversation you could have about like how representative of Kawaguchi you know the mayor is when he starts like getting all meta and stuff you know I think there's a lot of interesting conversation that could come out of that you know people seeing that as like oh yeah that's his way of saying fuck you to his editor and Shueisha or whatever you know I think there's a lot of interesting conversation that you could have around that kind of stuff and like I don't know like uh, I haven't seen a cancelled series end this interestingly since Stealth Symphony which that's another series that we've also talked about on the show that has a very wild ending uh, that you don't really see coming. But yeah, I mean, you know, we've we've talked about Red Hood on the show here and there. And like, you know, again, it's by far not a perfect series whatsoever, but there's still a lot of interesting things to gleam from it and still a lot of interesting things to talk about with it. And I think the ending is definitely one of them. Yeah, I mean, I think Red Hood definitely went in a very interesting direction and in it's ending, even though I wasn't perfectly satisfied with how it actually resolved a lot of the ideas I brought up. And certainly, I appreciated the ambition behind mm-hmm. it. It at least deserves a mention. Absolutely. Um, but what about you? For me, the best ending is the ending of Platinum. And the everyone <laughs> dies, a nihilistic ending of like everyone in humanity <laughs> is, decides to be, is, is killed by God. They all disappear. And it ends with all this reflection of like, oh, that is what feels like and all this philosophy. <laughs> no, obviously not. That just, that stems out as the worst, one of the worst manga endings of the oh, year, man. of anything. It's, uh, oh God, Platinum is going to be fun to talk about when we get to mm, it. Yeah, more, 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 more on that later, yes. No, seriously, <laughs> the ending I want to acknowledge is the ending of Horrible Cop and Dolphin. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't think, well, like, I do, I am sad that, like, the, uh, 
The series ultimately did end a little more abruptly than I would have liked. It still managed to resolve a lot of the core stuff it was doing in terms of its exploration of Samejima and his relationship to Orpheus and then also the main conflict they had with the villain of the series and the Cult of the Sea stuff. But really what I liked about the final chapter is just, you know, it's one of those like kind of flash forward chapters, but I like seeing, you know, the framing of it is like Chaco reflecting on her street ads. And of course, you know, it culminates with, you know, her acknowledging that Shitamajima is like her dad and just that she's appreciative of him. And, you know, there's a sweet moment of like, you know, Orpheus obviously died in the final arc. But in this chapter, like they, a shark has a new like dolphin companion. It's like a dolphin, not a dolphin, it's just a regular dolphin that he has named Orpheus. Kind of as a, as a sweet like homage to him. And yeah, I just thought that was a very sweet ending. And I thought that was a very satisfying way to close the series out, even though there are loose ends. I felt that ultimately, you know, even though I really was not a big fan of uh, Hardball Cobb and Dolphin, when it first started and I still think a lot of those early chapters were not great I do think that the arc it ended on which ended up being more than half the series anyway and then the conclusion it has did a lot in my mind to leave me overall feeling positive about the series and having really appreciated it and like what it was doing with its characters and story so Yeah, I just ended up really enjoying that. I think it's very good when an ending can leave you off with a good taste in your mouth. Like, just saying, like, hey, yeah, like, uh, I'm glad ultimately that I read this. Like, there were some up and downs, but this was satisfying, even if not all the loose ends are resolved. And of course, the ending of Hell's Paradise was also very satisfying. You know, you got kind of the closure you wanted for all the characters that survived and is really nice ending to that series too so yeah those are like the endings that stick out to me most this year all right but uh let's move on to our favorite new manga of 2021 and um i'm just gonna get mine out of the way really quickly because i kind of talked about it closer to the beginning of the show and um You know, again, as I said earlier, I made the bold declaration that Chojin X was my favorite new manga of 2021, and it's it's still a very good series, and I'm still really looking forward to keeping up with it, and I think it is one of the best new things to come out of 2021. But I have to be honest with myself, I think Elusive Samurai beats it out for me. <laughs> it's really it's really hard for me when when a new series from both Kanta Shinohara and Yusei Matsui come out in the same year. It's pretty hard for me to not have one of those series be my new favorite of any given year. Like, it's just, it's just, look, I don't know what else I could say about Elusive Samurai that I haven't already, because I feel like every time I talk about it, I just kind of gush about it. But like, it is, it is genuinely like a really good series in a string of like, you know, like literally everything Yusei Matsui does is good. Like, Nero was good, Assassination Classroom was good, if not arguably better, and Elusive Samurai um, depending on how it goes, I mean, I don't know if I'll personally like it more than Assassination Classroom. That might be hard to beat, honestly, but, like, I imagine it'll at least be as good as Nero. Like, it's just, you know, for, for anyone who has read Nero, like, it's Matsui going back to that sort of style where, like, again, characters are allowed to be over the top and grotesque in ways that are, like, genuinely, like, really amusing. Um, you know, the, the fights in it are super good, too. Um, I was really close to having, a 
um, Kojiro versus uh, Wada Yonemaru in particular, the big guy on the horse. That was really close to being one of my favorite manga fights this year. It's just... I don't know. It's just a genuinely really fun series to read. And I, again, it's hard for me to not pick a Yusei Matsui series. But again, Choji X is like a definite like second pick for me. And hell, if I had to pick a third, Shoha Shoten might be my third favorite series of 2021 personally. So hey, nice picks. Like I really enjoyed all the series too. And all those were my shortlist, but they were not in my top three. So it ended up working out. <laughs> all right. What, what, what's your top three? So, start off with a series that I haven't found a way to bring up yet so far, but I really do enjoy, is Four Nights of the Apocalypse by Nakaba Suzuki. Of course, this follow-up to Seven Deadly Sins, but mostly standalone from Sins. Obviously, they're returning characters. The antagonist force is led by Arthur, who seems to have been corrupted and is now misguided by chaos. And then Goucher has reappeared in an arc and helped the crew out. But in generally, it stars like four characters who I think are just a really compelling group. In Percival, who like really has this kind of kid Goku-like energy and how just kind and too enthusiastic he is but he's like just a kind nice strong boy he's very fun and he has like very nice moments of empathy that i really enjoy we have nazians who is like a specialist in poisons and he's like kind of the brains of the group he's very perceptive he's very ready to kind of immediately uh, understand a situation, figure it out. I, he's really cool. We have Donnie, who is kind of like the Usopp or Yantra group. He's like kind of like a coward with a heart of gold, even though he will at first run away from a life-changing situation. He'll always come back to help his friends. And then we have On, who is like, I love her, like very rambunctious, ambitious personality, like wanting to position herself as the leader of the group constantly. Like she is the most proactive member and she gets the most carried away, but she's also incredibly very skilled in combat and she also has a great ability to be able to detect when other people are lying, which she has used in really cool ways. And also very, like, sweet ways too. So I like that a lot. I like the core group of characters a lot. They're just a really great main cast. Uh, I think Suzuki's art and action are top-notch as always. There are a lot of exciting arcs this year. There are also a lot of, like, great monster designs this year for demons that are introduced and corrupted people. Once again, it's kind of following like a similar format to the start of Seven Deadly Sins, where like the villains are like kind of a corrupted group of holy knights, but it's very compelling with Percival's conflict with his father Ironside, who murdered his grandfather, and then just complicated relationship there, and then just trying to figure out really like what is the truth of the a legend of the Four Knights of Apocalypse and the prophecy of what they're meant to do because on one hand there are people who believe that they're going to bring hope to the world on the other hand Arctur's forces feel that they're going to destroy the world and what is actually going on there is a very interesting thing to see explored as is the mystery of like their guides through their journey sin and who he really is this like our talking fox who knows more than he's letting on and we still don't quite know like what his relationship to the seven deadly sins and what his relationship to Arthur and Britannia is but he, there's a lot going on with him and there's just a lot of really cool like storylines and action moments in this series like uh, I really love the moment where the entire band of four kind of gotten together we have this great chapter of like everyone is like talking about 
their belief in Percival. And, you know, he has been knocked out in this fight at this moment. And, like, after hearing all their encouragement, he kind of awakens his powers and kind of is able to, like, evolve them and stand buck in the fight against his father. And then we have a great arc about, like, you know, this former uh, teammate of Donnie's and the Holy Knights that went rogue and became a leader of, like, a group of bandits in, like, this town that, like, kind of tricks and kind of... Uh, scams people and he is like a dragon under his control because he stole its egg and that's a really fun arc and also gets a revelation that like Adani is like the nephew of Hauser which was a cool callback and then we had the great storyline of like meeting like this village of peaceful demons who didn't participate in the holy wall and are being protected by Gauter and they had a really compelling emotional story about one of Arthur's holy knights who like was you know he lost his, like, daughter, like, his infant daughter in, like, the war, and that kind of led him to go astray and, like, wanting to being recruited by Arthur and then having this zealous hatred for demons, but then he ended up being kind of reached out to, thanks to, like, seeing his daughter in Anne, and then getting his empathy appeal to, and then ultimately making a sacrifice to save her, and it was very sweet and emotional. And then the current stuff has just been so cool, as they've been pursued by the elite group of Arthur's knights, and they have are all working together to take them out one-on-one, there's just this great fight on a tree branch like where they all like fought this one guy together and there was a great application of powers there and yeah I just think this is like excellent action adventure shonen stuff that I with just incredibly compelling characters really good like underlying mystery stuff and a really good expansion to the lore of Seven of the Sims and to me this is like the best qualities of what Suzuki did in Seven of the Sims without a lot of the baggage that kind of brought especially the early parts of that series down. And yeah, I've really, really been enjoying it a lot. It's an incredibly fun read. And yeah, I can't wait to see where it continues to go. Uh, in terms of other series, of course, that I want to acknowledge, but, you know, I brought it up before. Down to Dawn, consistently great, fantastic art, great characters, uh, great use of psychic powers and reimaginings of, like, aliens and kind of supernatural monsters. It's such an awesome ride of a series. I love the interplay of, like, an alien versus yokai type story. And I think it's been a lot of fun to read and keep up with, and continues to be. Perhaps, though, surprisingly my favorite Maybe not surprisingly, but honestly, when I think about all the new manga this year, I really do find myself thinking, man, I enjoy this series consistently. And I'll, uh, like, I really am into this. And that's Witch Watch, because it is, oh, you know, wow. I remember when we first reviewed the opening chapters, I wasn't super into it. Like, I didn't think it quite appealed to me as much as Sket Dance or Astra. But as we've continued, as it's continued to go on, like, it found its groove in the character relationships. When Khan got introduced, I think it really started to find itself. And it started having some more emotional chapters, like the chapter with... Uh, Nico's friend who, you know, had this whole history with her parents and thinking that, you know, she wasn't her father's biological child, but then it turns out she was. It was her mother who was, she was not related to, but that ultimately not mattering who she was related to her parents all the same. She loved them. That was an incredible chapter. Uh, I mentioned before, I love the uh, Dengeki Melon chapters. Consistently funny to me. I think the arc with Wolf was really great. And yeah, I just think Witch Watch ultimately did end up winning me over 
over and I appreciate like all the different sides of it. It's comedy side. It's like kind of more action arc side. And I got really into the characters and I'm having a lot of fun with it. So I think, yeah, like it ended up surprising me. But I think when I think about all the manga, new manga that came out this year, and there were a lot of great titles. I do come away having the most affection and fondness for Witch Watch and, and enjoying it weekly, keeping up with it now the most. Oh, I knew Shinohara would pull you in. <laughs> Take that, Sakaki you called it boneless punk Kotsuchan. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um but no, yeah, good picks. I mean, you know, I love Witch Watch. Um well, I should say I should say I, I like it a lot. I actually don't know if I if I love it as much as like Skep Dance or even Astra, but I still really like it a lot. But yeah, I'm 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 interested in seeing how it'll like evolve further. But yeah. Um, I think we had a lot of good picks, a lot of really great new manga came out this year, but uh, I think it's time to talk about our favorite ongoing manga of 2021, and um, I'll just get this out of the way. My favorite's My Hero Academia, easy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I mean, look, we, 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 we constantly talked about earlier how like My Hero Academia had like just a really good string of chapters, especially for a couple months, but like I really think this entire year has been good. Like there hasn't been a chapter that I disliked, quite honestly. You know, everything from Deku and his journey trying to find more info on Shigaraki and all for one, that fight with Lady Nagant. You know, him coming back to UA, you know, all that stuff with uh, Star and Stripes fighting Shigaraki. That was some really cool stuff. And um, even the traitor reveal, like, you know, I I think most people would probably even consider it a big year just on that alone. Like, that's something that, like, Horikoshi's been playing the long game on for so long that people genuinely thought he forgot about it or whatever. And it actually... Uh, it actually got paid off this year, and um, I really love the way that's been playing out. And I don't know, My Hero Academia. I it's like it, it's also the only series out of everything that I tried to keep up with, simulpub wise, that like I never fell behind on. And admittedly, you know, I feel like I have to thank Kendra and the My Hero Academia podcast crew for that because uh, we we were both on a few episodes of that this year, and I think that really mm-hmm. helped me kind of keep up with it because i was on for a little while there but um yeah i mean it really says something where like my hero academia was the only thing i really consistently kept up on and it's just because it was just that good you know yeah no i I mean we mentioned it before but like mj had some really strong moments and really big moments this year so it was a really good year for it and it was a good year for vigilantes and i didn't bring up vigilantes much this episode but a a lot of stuff from vigilantes was on my short list for every category but yeah it was a strong year for vigilantes too with the entire climactic fight against six which uh yeah a lot of great moments in that so for the mha franchise generally this was a one was really good year Mm -hmm. i think for sure if I just have to say really quickly, my other two picks after my Hero Academia would be Elusive Samurai and One Punch Man. Mm. I, th- I think I think those are my easy top three for 2021. Yeah, I think those are really strong picks. I really enjoy this series a lot too, especially like. Yeah, I mean, all of them I really like. But surprisingly, or maybe unsurprisingly, I don't know. They they actually aren't in my top uh, five. Ooh. But I also excluded uh, the new manga, just to not to have a repeat from the previous category. That's fair. But yeah, I guess to mention my favorites, uh, top to bottom, my top three, uh, let's 
just go. Uh, so my number three is me and Roboco because consistently every chapter <laughs> is a delight. It's funny. I mean, we talked about it in the jump retrospective, but like this is like a it is maybe an indulgent manga. It's a manga for manga fans and jump fans. But as one, I just find it. And it's affection for the culture of Jump so endearing. And I just find the characters so lovable. You know, I didn't end up bringing them up. But I will say that on my shortlist for favorite protagonists of the year were Gachi Gorilla and Motsuo. Because consistently, <laughs> like, chapters about them, about their friendship, about them being supported to Bondo, were some of my favorite chapters among them this year. And I just absolutely, like, I'm just... So affectionate of the series. I just really look forward to Roboco chapters like every week. And Same. Get yeah. a lot of joy uh, out of them. And then my number two, unsurprisingly, or perhaps surprisingly, if you expect it to be my number one, is Jujutsu Kaisen. Because, you know, this was a fantastic year. Even though, like, there were less chapters this year. Like, everything that did happen in the series this year, especially with the Higuruma stuff towards the end of the year, uh, was amazing. But, man, like, from the beginning of the year, where we reintroduced Okotsu into the main story, and we had him go after Itadori, and which led, ultimately, to an alliance, and then... Revealing a bunch of stuff about Tengen and all sorts of setup for the Culling game. And then going into like Maki versus the entire Zenin family. Then going over to the start of the Culling game. Uh, well, also introducing Hikari. Finally meeting Hikari. And the fight against him was really good. Recruiting him. And then, yes, the oldest stuff I think room at the start of the Culling game. Every part of that I was just so enthralled by. So into. And... Yeah, like, I consistently just love and excited by Jujutsu Kaisen and where the story is going. My number one series, though, my favorite manga I was reading last year, I think, to me, this was without question. It wasn't even a contest, even as much as I loved so many other titles this year. And that was Undead Unluck. Because what a fantastic year of Undead Unluck. From the very start, where we had the Autumn Unowen stuff, which was, you know, I didn't mention as my favorite one this year, but the end of the fight with Autumn, the from me to you, the end where, like, we had this big monologue in that chapter, just narrating Unowen's life as, like, they take it out of him. That ended with, like, Andy, you know, at this point, Unowen is invisible and, like, he's forgotten by people but like just instinctively Andy recognizes that somebody something is there in front of me puts out his fist and he now on fist but like he is included in this victory with the rest of them even though like they for all rights have forgotten because he's invisible it's just so satisfying such a great moment but then continuing on from there we had like the great fight between Juiz and Billy over winter we had the great summer arc where we delved into Shin's backstory with his master. Oh, yeah. And had the huge swerve and plot twist of, like, Shin dying and then becoming a Zhangxi. <laughs> and we taking his place in the group and it's him inheriting, her inheriting his powers. And then that conclusion of that fight was so great. And then, of course, like, just the cherry on top of all the spring arc, which I mentioned before, but spring is a fantastic antagonist. The everything that Fuko went through in the arc as like being kind of a captive of under and then like working her way to like communicate information and then the conflict between Dora and under and then culminating in like Fuko's match with Spring and just how that has turned out has just been so fantastic and we got in so many great moments that have fleshed out other members of the group like Top and Ishin with compelling backstories and also compelling moments where they have like the moment where like you know Top has like run all around the world in the fight and like he 
it concludes with like high-fiving Andy and Andy's like arm just flies off and gives like a thumbs up. It's amazing. Uh, but yeah, like Under the Look just did so much this year and did so much with all its characters this year and just told so it's such compelling stories. It was very enthralled throughout the entire year. I thought it had such a strong year. Absolutely, unquestionably, when I sat down to think about what was my favorite currently one of the year was Under the Look. So yeah, very, very satisfied with this year. That's uh, that's not a bad number one. I mean, look, I agree. Undead Unluck has been really good all year. But for me, it's just, you know, I, I had other series that I was keeping up with that uh, I just I just like that much more. Mm. I mean, that's fair. Like different things hit different for different people. But like, I think we all acknowledge like it was a really good year for manga that we were keeping up with on Shonen Jump and also on other platforms. But sadly, I, I don't think I mentioned a lot of stuff outside of uh, Viz Jump as much as I'd like to, but that just goes to show how strong a year a lot of that stuff was. Oh, yeah, for, for sure. For a lot of that series. Oh, man. We're on our way to the end here, but before we get on to the manga we promised to read in 2022, we do have some mentions from Twitter, if I can read those real quickly. Absolutely. We asked our Twitter followers, you know, what was some of their favorites from 2021. And I'm just going to start here with at Justin underscore Legends, who says uh, they really loved Red Hood and thought that Boruto had a great year. I and yeah, Red, you know, Red Hood, I am overall positive on because of the yeah, like I think it did a lot of interesting things. And yeah, uh, Boruto. I will say I don't think it was as strong a year as years past, but I do love the gift that is given us in Code. Because Code is a fun, <laughs> memeable character <laughs> that I love the weekly manga recap guys just riffing on. And when Chris uh, just character acted as Code in one for one podcast, and they just reviewed the chapter in character as Code, it was so funny. So in the in the meta of like just enjoying like. The character of Code and what he has brought to the conversation of Bordeaux this year. Yeah, I think it was a fun year of Bordeaux for sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, we have something from Kendra, good friend of the show, Kendra, from the My Hero Academia podcast, at Sniper of My Heart, who says she basically can't decide whether Kaiju number eight or Jujutsu Kaisen was her favorite of the year. And, you know, we didn't bring it up at all, but like Kaiju number eight was really good this year, too. Yeah. Yeah, we really didn't mention as much as um, I might have thought we would. But we did mention, of course, that great moment of uh, number nine getting sliced in half. Yeah, yeah. And I will say, like, the conclusion of the nine Asao fight was a, a big moment. And I thought that was really well done. I think Asao as a character was pretty well done. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah, I think uh, that the way the series kind of left out the year was a really strong note. It's for the turning point in the series. All right, and next up we have something from, our, again, another good friend of the show, Luke from the Weird Science Anime and Manga Podcast, at LJ underscore Hollywood, who says, There were lots of bangers this year, but my favorites were Medalist from Kodansha and Even If You Slit My Mouth from Manga Plus. And we mentioned Even If You Slit My Mouth a little bit earlier on in the show, but um, Medalist I didn't know about until Luke brought it up, and I looked it up. It seems to be like an ice skating manga, which is kind of yeah. cool. We did report on this series uh, earlier in the year, of course, but... We might have, and I probably forgot. <laughs> yeah, this is one that I've been meaning to check out, but just haven't gotten around to. But everything I've heard about it has been really positive and promising. So yeah, like I think that's very encouraging. Luke enjoyed this a lot, and I definitely want to check this out. 
as soon as I can. I was going to say, if Luke says it's good, um, I trust him. I'd, I'd love to check it out. Mm-hmm. And then we got a few comments from Robert at Dad Needs to Talk from the Dad Needs to Talk podcast. You should go listen to that. Uh, and we'll just kind of run down through some of these here. Uh, he says his favorite new release was Karate Survivor in Another World, which I think we also reported on maybe again i don't really remember there's so many licenses from last year but um i looked it up and it it seemed like it's pretty cool i'd love to check it out as far as favorite powers go he mentions die dark and he says he loves how their abilities look in that series next up as far as favorite fights go he basically says every fight from fire force was his favorite from the last year yeah you know everything i've heard in terms of like the final walker fire horse has been really intriguing to me so i'm excited to read that once the localization catches up to it mm-hmm. uh, that one like memed on a uh, viral moment of tamaki aside that was bad <laughs> that i <laughs> that i think is worth riffing on uh, everything else i heard about how the final arc was going and i had seen the conversation of people was very intriguing to me and as someone who kind of have warmed up to fire force finally uh after material in the second season like yeah i'm, I'm really looking forward to seeing how it concludes so very promising that uh, robert enjoyed all the final stuff this year Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we can transition into his favorite moment uh, from 2021, because it is from Fire Force, I assume, uh, where he says, uh, Shinra kicking the moon, which, okay, I guess that happens. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they went to the moon in Soul Eater, so more moon play in this. I mean, the reveal of like the moon in this series was a, another big moment and kind of a tie into Soul Eater as well. So I, yeah, I'm curious to see uh, how that plays out. Okay, I... I know very little about the final arc of Fire Force because I'm not keeping up with it, but like I genuinely wasn't sure if that was like a metaphorical thing or if that actually happened. But either way, <laughs> uh, it does make me want to read Fire Force even more. But um, here, yeah, we'll go back to his favorite protagonist, which was Koichi from My Hero Academia Vigilantes saying he's grown so much. Yeah, and I really love the passing of the torch moment we have had in the recent chapters from Knuckle Duster to Koichi and him adopting like Knuckle Duster's like knuckle brawl style with his own quirk powers, which was super cool. That, that, uh, I probably should have also mentioned that as like favorite marketing technique, even though it's like literally in the final chapter of the year and only just used in the first chapter this year. But like, it was really uh, satisfying. Mm-hmm. He says his favorite chapter of 2021 was Dr. Stone chapter 192, which is the start of the Suica Alone arc, which uh, we also mentioned earlier in the show. Yeah, yeah. Definitely my favorite stretch of chapters from Stone this year. And then lastly, his current favorite running manga is Kaiju number eight. Another pick for Kaiju number eight. Not a great choice. I feel bad that we didn't mention it as much, but like, yeah, Kaiju number eight, again, very solid this past year. Absolutely. Man, what a good year for so many series. It uh, uh, genuinely it was really hard to pick. I had a like I, I had a hard time narrowing down my suggestions. We we were supposed to stick to one pick per category, and uh, you could you could see how well that turned out. But it's mm. that's fine. It was it's it's really hard to just talk about one moment per category because so much good stuff happened. Oh yeah. Um, but here we're, we're getting close to the end here because we're at our final category with manga we promised to read in twenty twenty one. Um, so I have our past resolutions written down, unless you want to talk about yours first. Hmm. Well, I guess you should lead off with what our past ones were, and then we'll go from there, because I didn't revisit two of those. Okay, uh, so let's start with you first. So uh, as far as, like, you know, what you said you wanted to get to 
in our 2020 podcast, I think the biggest thing that you mentioned was that you wanted to get to Yona of the Dawn out of like all of our survey picks. And we did record about Yona of the Dawn. Yeah. And uh, and I'm up to date. Ooh, yeah. yeah. The latest volumes. So. Mm-hmm. And hopefully that podcast, we, we recorded a main like discussion podcast and a Q&A for that. So hopefully that'll be out in a few months. We do want to get that out like soon-ish. So yeah. Yeah. It is in the queue of things we planned to release soon. Yes. But we but we did read Yona of the Dawn and we recorded that. I unfortunately didn't get to like catch up on the release, but I think I read like close to like 15, 17 volumes i've I read a good portion of it yeah you read up to the zeno reveal right so you read to volume 18 yeah yeah i i read like close to 20 ish volumes so like i I read like a good amount and i i loved what i read you know not to give too much away but yona of the dawn is good who'd have thunk it and then in general something we both kind of brought up i think was um you know we we should get to our survey requests i think specifically i said that like we would try to like record them and try to release them in 2022 unfortunately we've had to kind of push a couple back in particular i think we have two left that we need to do a shooting a joe and 20th century boys so we made progress last year on a couple yona being one of them and then also doro and Guitaro. That's right, that's right. But yeah, Silver Spoon 2 was another one we did. And yeah, so we did we did manage to take out a few, but yeah, now we still have those two left that I've just been uh, difficult to schedule just because of the length, I suppose. Yeah, well, we'll get back to those in a bit. Um, you said you wanted to catch up on non-jump simul pubs, uh, just in general. I didn't catch up on a lot of new things outside of Jump. So I'm caught up with every single series that is simulpub by Viz for Shonen Jump. So all 30 whatever series those Oof. are. And then I am behind on some of the Manga Plus series. Yeah, same. But I was keeping up with most of those. I wanted to catch up. I wanted to read some of the ones that ended this year that I was like very behind on, like World World and Summertime Rendering. Yeah, same, same. And Soloist in a Cage, but just didn't get around to. I hope to. I, Summertime Rendering, now that it's coming out in Wallace Rudon, I definitely plan to at least keep up with those physical releases this year. Um, and then, yeah, Crunchyroll Wise, uh, I guess, I mean, Fortnite of the Apocalypse was a new series that I've kept up with. So that's another addition to uh, the roster of things I was kept keeping up with. But I still haven't caught up with a, a lot of the other simuls on there that I wanted to. But then I suppose there are like simuls now on uh, Mangamo and uh, yep. uh, Oski and all sorts of things that I am up to date on or ahead on in some of the cases of Mangamo. So there's that. But, you know, I think I still my goal for next year is to be like 100% caught up with Manga Plus Simul Pubs uh, that I'm kind on and give up with all of them. And then uh, Crunchyroll wise, I want to work my way through the list because a lot of them, there are a lot of Simul Pubs by Kadansha uh, on Crunchyroll and elsewhere that I want to keep up with. And then, yeah, as much else as possible that I can. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, next up, you did mention that we should do a Futakia spotlight uh, and that we would probably do Yuki and Matsu. And we did that. Yeah. I had fun recording that podcast. Um, Eventually I would like to do another BL grab bag kind of thing, whether it's like all Futakia titles or not. I do want to sample more BL titles in the future. 
whatever, we can kind of like fit that in. But we'll get to that when we get to that. Um, and then lastly, you did mention you wanted to get to Tokyo Revengers, and we did do a podcast on that in 2021. Yeah. And uh, you can bet that when the series ends, we'll definitely like revisit it because uh, I'm sure, depending on how it ends, I'm sure it'll. I think the ending will be good, probably, and I'll probably want to talk about it for sure. Yeah, definitely interested in revisiting it for its final arc. Mm-hmm. Um, but here, so those were the things that you mentioned you wanted to get to on that podcast. So what what are what are your new resolutions? I, I'm curious. Well, I just mentioned that I want to catch up on uh, old currently running Manga Plus simulpubs and then as many good answers control ones as I can and then others outside of those platforms as well. I uh, didn't we didn't even mention a lot of the stuff on Comic Key too that we've been that's keeping true, up with. That's true. Killer and Love probably should have uh, deserved some sort of <laughs> uh, recommendation or some sort of mention because that was a great series. Yeah, that that should have that should have gotten an honorable honorable mention from me too. That that genuinely was a page turner. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I mean. Mainly, I want to catch up on a lot of these review copies that I've, I have on my backlog of uh, needing to write reviews for and read. So that's kind of like a general want to get through as much as possible. Uh, I want to read as many like jump manga in the vaults and then outside that are available like on uh, Manga Planner or whatever as possible for like a project I would like to do next year. And then I would like to read and hopefully record podcasts on like 10 different shoujo manga that have been in kind of my bucket list of wanting to cover on the show this year. So hopefully I can get around and managed to do that if nothing else we definitely will be covering a lot more shoujo manga on the show this year mm-hmm. is there any like one thing in particular that if you had to pick from everything that we're planning on doing that you want to get to in particular one thing in particular what is what does your heart say I mean, something that comes to mind is merely is please save me here, but that's because I already have made plans to do a podcast on it. So I feel like that's not, I feel like I should mention something that I already haven't, like, started making preparations to do as a bucket list thing. More Moto Hagio stuff in particular I really have wanted to cover for a long time. So for sure, yeah. Utter World Barbara and the Poe Clan is something I would like to do this year. And yeah, I think there are a lot of others I would want to mention. I want to do another Natsuki Takaya manga because I like... In the past few years, I've ended up being on podcasts for Fruits Basket, Fruits Basket, and Nutter. I kind of want to keep the tradition going of like every fall, I cover a Natsuki Takaya manga on a podcast. So uh, this year, I would like to do the series she did after Fruits Basket, Twinkle Stars. So I guess it's another one I can mention to you that I promise I want to do this year. Okay. Um, Is that about it for your resolutions? Or do you have anything else you want to mention? No, I think that is a good general summation of things I want to read this year. All right, let's go over the things that I said I wanted to do. Um, So I also mentioned the rest of our survey requests. I'll get back to that in a little bit. I mentioned that we should do Demon Slayer because around the time we recorded our 2020 podcast, you know, that was right off the heels of us finding out how well Demon Slayer did and it being the biggest manga of 2020. <laughs> um, so there was no way we couldn't do a podcast on it. We did. And uh, I thought it was a really good discussion. I- I'm glad we got to talk about Demon Slayer. Absolutely. It was very fun to reread that 
And I reread specific parts of that lots of times last year because I feel like I read Mugen Train specifically multiple different times. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, it was a great discussion. Demon Slayer definitely is up there as one of my favorite series. So I'm glad we could uh, do a proper retrospective on it. Mm-hmm. I mentioned that uh, in terms of Jump Stop podcast in particular, I started wanting to do those twice a year to try to get through at least some of them in in a you know get, get through like some of them but not fast enough to where we, where we like just kind of burn through all of them you know um and i think when i brought that up i mentioned that i wanted to tie that in with another idea that i had of doing a kohei horikoshi month where we would talk about omagadoki zoo and barrage in the same month along with um, I at the time I said My Hero Academia Vigilante specifically, but I think eventually we got to the point where it's like, well, it doesn't look like it's ending anytime soon just yet. So we we decided to do My Hero Academia Smash instead. At Smash, I think it actually turned out very well because it was a fun discussion that I think a lot of people really enjoyed. So yeah, I'm glad mm-hmm. we covered that. And Vigilantes, I am looking forward to covering when it does end, and I do think it is going to end this year. We are very close to it, I think. So mm-hmm. I'm looking forward to covering that when we do a follow-up Horikoshi month. Probably not this year, but next year. I mean, heck, by the time we do the second one, maybe we'll do it around the time the manga itself ends, and we could do a series retrospective on that, too, uh, as part of the same month. So that'd be kind of fun. I was going to say, wouldn't that be more like a My Hero Academia month at that point, basically? At this point, we've covered his works besides MHA, so that really is what's left. <laughs> uh, okay, there you go. My Hero Academia month in the next couple of years on the podcast. I-, I wouldn't mind that. I definitely want to do a retrospective of My Hero Academia sometime after it ends, for sure. Absolutely. And then uh, I think the last thing I mentioned was I wanted to do a Halloween-type month of podcast, and I think we... I think we accomplished that this year. We covered a lot of like really cool sort of like spooky-ish kind of titles. I'm trying to find them real quick. Uh, we covered both uh, Parasite and Neo-Parasite. We covered uh, Gekigen no Kitaro. We covered Dororo. And yeah, I think that made for a good like slew of like nice spooky podcasts. It is a shame that, uh, I mean, obviously I'll wait as long as it takes, but like it is a shame that like Uzumaki didn't come out in 2020. But hopefully that'll come out this year and maybe we could do a podcast on like around the time that new anime comes out. That's what I would like to do anyway. Yeah, I would be surprised if it did not come out this year because they've delayed it two years in a row of like when they said it's going to be out. I have to imagine her time's a charm, especially since they announced the Japanese cast and they've announced a lot of things. So I think that, yeah, we'll see it this fall. Mm hmm. But yeah, I think we pretty much got to everything I wanted to do, aside from the rest of the survey requests. So let's start with those first. So you mentioned earlier that the only two requests that we have left to do are Ashino Joe and 20th Century Boys. And I'm going to say I want to do at least one of those, if not both of those. By I the end of 2022 and into 2023. Five years of having put up that survey and still hadn't finished all of them. I do eventually want to do another survey of, like, asking people what they want us to cover, but, like, next time we'll just limit the options to, like, one per category, maybe five Yes, yes, we will. Because I (laughs) have come to the recognition of, like, really, in terms of the amount of series covered this year, we, like, or each year we cover, like, maybe a little more than a dozen, a dozen to 16-ish we managed. It depends on the length. Yeah, as the length is also a huge factor, and a lot of the stuff that got voted in that survey were 
rather long series that, uh, you know, you in particular had to collect uh, a lot of and that so there's like budget to consider in addition to like yeah. the time spent reading. <sighs> Look, I have I have all the 20th Century Boys, so as soon as we can find the time to start getting ready for it and record it, I'm totally up for doing it as soon as we can find time for it. So, yeah, but, you know, I'm going to say I want to get at least to one of those because honestly, like, you know, a little behind the scenes stuff. Um, every time I've started up Ashino Joe, because I think we're going to get to it, we end up having to move it. And I'm just like, well, I guess I'll drop this for now. <laughs> oh, man, I just I'm really excited for both. So I'm I'm cool if we cover even one of them, but it would be nice to cover both of them if we can, you know. Um, so that's that's a big thing. And then um, so uh, one of the things that kind of bums me out the most about 2020, besides um, a lot of things, let's just say, <laughs> is um, is the fact that like you know when we recorded that show originally, you know, uh, we were so ready to like start releasing and editing or editing and releasing uh, our Food Wars podcast, and then. That kind of fell through because we lost audio on that. I explained it all basically in that podcast um, as like an aside I had to add later because of because we we basically found all that out after we recorded that episode. But um, I basically mentioned that like, you know, out of all the like stuff, like we have two podcasts we need to re-record for eventually, that being Food Wars and Yu Yu Show. And we do have plans to try to do both by the end of 2021. But I'm going to say same thing with the survey requests. Um I would like to get to at least one of those, like either Yu Yu Hakusho or Food Wars, but it would be nice to try to do both if we can find time for those, because I'm still really sad that we lost audio for both of those, and like, I I really want to get to both of those eventually. Yeah, I think it's unfortunate that both of those podcasts never saw the light of day because of audio issues, so I would like to revisit and redo them. And yeah, give them the coverage uh, they deserve and like we want to do them. It's like series we really love. Mm -hmm. Especially with Food Wars because it's like, God, it took me so long to get to it. And I finally read all of it and we finally recorded it. And I was so I was so looking forward to like putting those up too, especially since we kept having to put off the release of that too. And then when I found out like, oh, we lost some audio for it. It's like, well, that 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 really kind of took the winds out of my sail a little bit. I was really, really bummed out about that. But it'll give us a chance to kind of like to kind of like redo it a bit, too. And kind of like, you know, because part of me also kind of feels like, you know, we, we could have even like shortened the conversation on it a little bit here and there. So I, I think we could do like even like a slightly better job on trying to keep the discussion sort of focused and like structured. Uh, on the second go around. So, you know, th there was stuff we could have improved on with that conversation. So I, I think it'll turn out even better. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess like the, like the big things I really want to get to this year, uh, that we weren't already kind of planning for. So really the big thing, well, I'll, here, I'll start with this first. So obviously I want to keep doing jump stops and I want to do two again this year. And the two, I think we're going to hopefully get to are both Gaku Hote and Red Sprite. Mm -hmm. uh, I really want to do both of those. And um, hopefully we'll have some pretty cool guests for those in particular. So uh, I'm really looking forward to like revisiting both of those, especially Gaku Hote. Cause like, I mean, I guess I'm looking forward to both Gaku Hote and Red Sprite. Cause I did keep up with those like week to week until they ended. Um, so it'll be fun to kind of like revisit those and see how I feel about them you know a couple years out yeah yeah Gaki Hote I had a lot of fun with in particular so I look forward to rereading that mm-hmm and uh okay so the biggest thing I really want to get to and I really had to think about this actually uh until I realized oh wait no it's the thing that we keep talking about on the podcast for like the past few months now is 
We have to do an episode on Platinum End. We have to do it this year. I want to do it this year. I want to read Platinum End and finally see what I'm missing out on or not missing out on. We just, we have to do it. We have to do it. I really want to talk about Platinum End. Yeah. We have never, well, perhaps Diesel uh, and that (laughs) other one we covered on that episode were examples of comics we read knowing they'd be bad on the show. But generally, we don't (laughs) intend to cover comics that we know we're going to dislike or we know we consider bad, but like Platinum End is going to be an exception just to complete the trilogy of Obobata works uh, that's been a long time of covering in terms of coverage and yeah, reading Oba's writing at easily its worst. And, uh, <laughs> you know, I joked about the ending earlier, but it's, <laughs> it's going to be a trip uh, to read that entire series and talk about it. And hopefully we'll have some fun. <laughs> In that conversation, uh, and it won't just be like just a miserable stitch out to read that. It's already kind of painful uh, or difficult <laughs> for me to try and reread Bakuman because it's all the pro- <laughs> problem and parts of that. But Latin Man is just so much worse and so much less uh, redeeming or good to it. So, <sighs> oh, well, I'm sorry ahead of time for putting you through this, but I'm just, I'm way too curious about it. And I need to finally put this curiosity to rest eventually. Like, I don't know. Platinum End might be like the thing I'm like the most excited to talk about in 2021. It might be actually. Oh, man. It's going to be, I think we're going to have a really good discussion out of that. Like, it's like, it's like you said, we don't normally aim to like talk about comics we know that we're probably not going to like, but like, it's like I've said before, sometimes I like trash. Sometimes I just want a dumpster dive. I don't think we do that enough on the show. So like every once in a while, take a little dumpster dive. I don't, I don't think that's such a bad thing, you know, in moderation, you know, mm-hmm. we, 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 we talk about too many good comics on the show. We, we need to kind of like, we need to like even out a ratio a little bit. <laughs> I suppose. Uh, all right. But, um. I think that's about it for everything I really want to get to. Again, like with, with stuff like the survey requests and like the stuff we need to re-record, I, you know, a, a lot of the stuff I I want to get to personally are things that like we've been needing to get to for years now. And I really want to try and see if we can make 2022 early into 2023, like the period where we can like get some of that stuff just kind of done and out of the way and we won't have to worry about it anymore, mm-hmm. thankfully, you know? Mm-hmm. I feel bad because that makes it sound like a chore, but like, you know, and I'm looking forward to doing those. But at the same time, it's like we keep mentioning it and it's like, man, we got to do those eventually. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but yeah, that's about it for all the manga we promised to read and podcast about in 2022. And uh, oh, boy, we're finally done. <laughs> yeah, I was kind of hoping this would not be another four hour one because we were limiting ourselves to one per. But in the end, it did end up running just as long uh, probably i don't know if as long as year the previous years but uh, another four hour one for sure <laughs> oh man uh thank you everybody for listening to us for the if if you're if you're still listening to us after all this time you know if, if you're this far into the podcast first off thank you so much for listening to this whole thing mm-hmm. um we really appreciate you really anytime you listen to the podcast but especially these you know we appreciate you listening to this entire episode and and hey lum bud Thank you for recording with me for over four hours. This was fun. This was a lot of fun. Thank you for recording this with me. It was a lot of fun to reflect on our favorites. Thank you for like uh, being my podcast co-host and for uh, doing the show together for the past uh, 
six years. It's, we've covered a lot of great series. We had a lot of great conversations and I look forward to enjoy this so much. It's, uh, it's something I look forward to pretty much every week, every time we record the show. No, for sure. I always look forward to these. Um, also, really quickly, can I, can I just say, um, I love you. Thank you for being my friend. Uh, I love you. Thank you for being my friend. <sighs> All right. Just wanted to get that out there. I, mm. I love you, Captain Yami. <laughs> <laughs> we love you, sir. <laughs> A uh, lot of lovely moments of just people telling each other they love them in manga this year. Love to see it. We definitely need more of that, mm-hmm. for sure. We'll not say no to uh, more of that in general. You can never have enough love. And in the spirit of spreading the love, that brings us to our community shoutouts for this episode. These will primarily be other best of the year lists from other podcasts and publications to supplement our own and showcase even more of the best manga media that came out last year. Our friend Sakaki wrote of a great retrospective on Shonen Sunday in 2021, evaluating the changes to the magazine's personnel insofar as seeing a new chief editor. The various new anime adaptions Sunday manga received last year, which series are all the rage nowadays, aka Frere and Komi, and what to look forward to in Sunday's future. Sunday tends to be underrated compared to Jump, so Sakaki's work promoting and spotlighting their series and the state of it as a publication is incredibly valuable and appreciated. And if you somehow haven't yet followed him on Twitter for more Sunday updates, please do follow him on Twitter and his weekly Chicago account for weekly breakdowns of Sunday every week. The magazine comes out. But if you want a more jump-focused retrospective, the Multiversity Manga Club recap there for Jump Manga to read in 2021. And as I mentioned many times on the show, I find Bolton and Emily's takes and banter on chip series a lot of fun, and it's interesting to hear what they enjoyed most last year. And you'll find we were in agreement with many of their choices. Weekly Manga Recap Bolton did a great sum up rundown of their thoughts on the jump manga they kept up with for the show, and deciding what their favorite characters, fights, moments, etc. were, much like how we do on our show as well as a recap of their favorite and least favorite recommendations I read on the show last year. WMR is one of the smartest and funniest manga podcasts around, and it's always fun to listen to their end-of-the-year retrospectives, especially as Nick tries his best to remember where all the series were at the start of the year, and hilariously misremembering. Which was particularly funny this year when it came to his memories of One Piece, after it had been a joke since the start of the year that there's no way he couldn't remember how One Piece started this year. He's literally started with Chapter 1000. For a broader coverage of the best manga from last year, Manga Machinations is their own end-of-the-year awards, which are a bit more personal in nature to their podcast, but categories like Best New Series Discovered by Takazu and the Fuck This Award. Their show focuses more on the manga they read in 2021 than exclusively only series that came out last year which gives some eclecticness and variety in the choices for to help by the crew's own broad and varied tastes. In terms of coverage and acknowledging the sheer variety of series and the diversity of series and different manga out there, the Manga Mac crew are truly unrivaled. There are other podcasts following a great variety of titles, of course, including our good friends at the Rewrite to Love podcast where G and Ray ran down each of their top five manga of the year, as well as a bevy of honorable mentions. And with as well-read and widely read as they are, their show does the best job out there of highlighting a lot of the best new manga reads there were last year. 
Moving on to list spotlighting both anime and manga, if you're specifically interested in what some of the best queer media were last year, then Erica's list of the best jury anime and manga of 2021, covering both licensed and licensed titles, should satisfy your interest with some great recommendations. A variety of different series appealing to Yuri lovers, many of which I agree with or am excited to get around to reading myself. The AIPT website, who among their writers include friend and previous guest of the show Alex Klein, also had their writer spotlight, their favorite manga and anime of last year, highlighting a lot of favorites of ours, including a few that didn't come up in our discussion. I especially appreciate Alex mentioning High School Family as their favorite comedy 2021, which sidebar I really didn't bring it up in the show that much, but I should have because High School Family was genuinely one of my favorite manga to read last year. Probably top five, honestly, in Weekly Shonen Jump. And I like someone else give it its due. I like seeing that. And all the choices Alex and their fellow AIPT writers picked were very strong and great recommendations. As always, ANN also had most of their writers participate in their best and worst anime of 2021 feature, where every writer highlighted their five favorite shows of the year, as well as their favorite moments and characters alongside other accolades. Anime Feminist similarly compiled a list of their favorite feminist-friendly anime picks of 2021, if you want an even more curated list of some of the best and most fun and top-promoting series of last year, I always look forward to seeing ANN and Anime Feminist lists every year to see what the end of the year consists of and what the best shows of the year were, and discover some series that have passed on or missed before, and their lists are comprehensive resources if you'd like to do the same. Speaking of yearly traditions I always look forward to, there are two Dragon Ball-specific ones that have been the highlight of the end of the year for me for several years, that themselves sadly had their last hurrahs last year. But they went out with a bang and some bangers. Mr. Fusion's 2021 Dragon Ball the 16th December videos provided a great look at the Super Boo of Fusion fights of the manga, as well as a review of Fusion Reborn, and it was a great series of videos to comprise what will bittersweetly be the last Dragon Ball the 16th December to feature Lance's coverage of the original manga. Though hopefully the tradition of DVD will continue when he moves to covering post-original series material. However, one Dragon Ball video tradition that will probably not be continuing even in another form is Team 4 Stars December, Which came to an end last year with their top 12 Dragon Ball story arcs list, which was a wonderful exploration and celebration of the series and what makes the story so resonant with all of his fans. DB Summer was one of my favorite traditions to watch every year and always a wonderful celebration of the series even when they would criticize it. And while it's sad to see it come to an end, I'm truly grateful to the entertainment it gave us all. And for how it helped us reminisce about everything we loved and even sometimes hated about Dragon Ball that nonetheless, all together, makes it such an endearing franchise for us. Moving on from best of the year list, I want to continue spreading the love to other communities by showing love to some features spotlighting the great work of black creators, voice actors, and leaders in the anime community that were written last month during Black History Month. Crunchyroll did a great four-part series spotlighting black voices in the industry with spotlighted creators in fandom from a variety of professions, including Podcasting, cosplay, music, content creation, filmmaking, critics, industry jobs, executives, and so many more exploring the history of their fandoms and how they broke into the industry and how they made careers out of their love of anime. Which is just an incredible collection of stories that really show how much fandom and community can inspire people in their life's journeys. 
and how many phenomenal black creators and leaders there are in this industry community. Tanami Faithful also published a great piece for different writers on staff spots that black actors, creators, and characters whose work has appeared on Tanami that have meant a lot to them. There are also pieces confronting the hostility black members of the community face in anime fandom, namely Brianna Lawrence's interview on the Mary Sue with Zena Robinson, Kimberly Ann Campbell, and Neri Canones and AJ Beckles to explore their histories in the community and to explore their histories in the community and discuss topics of visibility, diversity, and inclusivity and why and how it matters and should not be considered rarities when the black community has always been around in anime fandom. And a piece by Kotaku interviewing the same folks about their fandom histories and careers and how they handled racist harassment and try to focus on the positive impact of their work. These pieces are also celebrations of the black anime community, but they highlight problems of hate and discrimination within the community that need to be continually addressed and fought back against in order to make the community and history a better and more supportive inclusive space. Speaking of supporting people, my last few shoutouts are for causes that I do need financial or social support or both. Lowest stakes of these is a Kickstarter for a book about Clamp, written by manga critic Ian Wolfe, that attempts to use comedy as a way to introduce and discuss the history and work of the legendary manga creating collective, which is a fun concept as there really isn't a book about Clamp in English out there. And while meant to be an intriguing exploration of their work, the book still promises to be a lot of fun, and has been checked by several other Clamp experts and enthusiasts, including the host of Clampcast, the Clamp Podcast. So if you're interested in helping fund a fun book about one of the most prolific and influential manga creators out there, definitely help support the Kickstarter for the book. To move on to more topics and people that are in more pressing and serious need of support, please check out and tweet in support of the hashtag New Deal for Animation, in which many artists in animation have banded together to lobby for support from the public as the Animation Guild is trying to negotiate for a new contract with the Alliance of Motion Picture and Television Producers to demand better wages and working conditions for folks working in animation, who have historically been underpaid and overworked despite the animation industry earning billions of dollars in the past two years, and executives earning record profits off the backs of their works through essentially wage theft, particularly in these past two years, where animation was the only medium of television and film entertainment that could consistently continue to produce work under the lockdown and quarantine conditions. So many artists have been sharing heartbreaking and frustrating stories about being pushed to their limits and suffering in their physical and mental health as they're expected to do so much more work in such an unreasonably short amount of time for ridiculously undervalued pay, particularly storyboard artists who basically have to do seven different jobs all in one, now for the same amount of pay that they used to get for just the one. There are just so many systemic problems and contractual abuses by companies that have been designed to underpay animators their fair due for the labor of their work, particularly by streaming platforms and their insidious batch orders that are designed to prevent animators from receiving their contractually obligated higher pay they would get from subsequent seasons that would be officially ordered. As someone who's experienced firsthand the toxic workaholic culture of the animation industry that develops even starting in art school that churns and 
burns people out in the name of producing content, it is high time for a new deal for animation. And I only encourage everyone to follow the hashtag and tweet in support of the artists negotiating and demanding for better conditions for everyone in the animation industry. For more details and discussion of the New Deal for Animation initiative, the Real News Network held an excellent roundtable discussion with a few of the Guild's most outspoken leaders, storyboard artist and writer David Dare, color designer Rachel Cohen, and comedian and writer Joey Cleft, where they go into further detail about how animators have been exploited historically and currently, especially in contrast to their peers working in similar roles in live actor productions, shed some light on the work they do and why it matters for artists to be able to be paid better wages and have better working conditions and more division of labor, definitely check it out for a great and thorough conversation about the problems the industry is dealing with and why it's important to push these companies and producers to accept a new deal for animation. There's also an individual animator who I think could really use more people's support by the name of Kazutaka Miyatake, a veteran illustrator in the anime industry who did space app designs for Macross and Yamato, among other projects, who last year suffered a horrible tragedy where his home studio was destroyed by an electrical file that also took the life of his wife. And he now is trying to raise funds to find new housing and purchase new supplies. And a friend and fan of his set up a GoFundMe to help raise funds for him for his housing needs, and while they've raised over 50 k so far, he could still use more support if you'd be able to help him. And most importantly, I am once again sharing the list of Ukraine aid and transute in Texas resources and links lists that I included in the community shoutouts in our previous episode, in case you did not see or check that out, and I have updated the list to include GoFundMe's collection of verified Ukraine fundraising campaigns, as well as their own Ukraine humanitarian fund. So please support the Ukrainian people in their time of crisis, and help support Transute under attack by transphobic politics in Texas. As always, our prayers, our hearts, wishes, and love go out to our listeners and to everyone in the world in a time of crisis, and we pledge to do everything in our power to spread messages of love and support through our podcast however best we can. We'll be sure to provide even more links and resources to help our communities in upcoming episodes, but for now, we'll leave you with this list of people we love talking about, and who love talking about the media they love, and communities they love to be a part of, and people we love who are in need of our love and support, and just we want to send our love to all our wonderful listeners out there as we head up and close off our wrap-up and our celebration of the best of this medium we love of manga from last year and we head into the wrap-up of the show and things to look forward to loving in the future um but okay yeah we should definitely end the show thank you guys so much for listening and uh I don't remember off the top of my head what we have coming up next time. A lot of stuff's kind of up in the air, but we got a lot of really cool stuff coming this year in 2022 that you should really look forward to, um, you know, outside of the stuff we mentioned earlier. And yeah, just thank you guys so much for listening and supporting the show. Yeah, I guess um, we can start plugging our stuff, Lum, Bud, 
where can people find you? You can find me at Lumramiyasha on Twitter and Les Lumramiyasha on a variety of pieces like Animation Revelation and Annualist and Letterboxd. Writers of Lumramiyasha, that's where you can find me. You can also read my manga reviews on mangawriters.com where you'll find a lot of reviews for stuff I mentioned on this podcast that I wrote reviews for and a lot of reviews for books that we have coming in. And we definitely are planning to get a lot more reviews out this year, so look forward to more on there. You can also find on Reddit.com the other podcasts I do, including Lum Squad, the Yours Yatsura focused podcast I do with my good friend Andrew Sayc, Yoshimura, where we discuss the wonderful Mikey World and Mukotakashi's Yours Yatsura. We've have been having a lot of fun going through the manga as Riz releases new volumes and covering each volume of that, and we're having a lot of fun going through the movies now that they're available streaming on Crunchyroll and also on Blu-ray from Discotheque, and we are incredibly excited for looking forward to covering the new anime that was announced that will be coming out later this year and so it's a very exciting time to be a Yurisigatsu fan we have a lot to talk about and we're really enjoying each and every time we record and get to talk about the series so look forward to more great Yurisigatsu conversations we're gonna have this year and yeah it's been a lot of fun recording the show and I'm really excited for what this year will have to bring in terms of even more stuff we have planned that we want to talk about but yeah and you can find Lum Squad on Twitter at Lum underscore Squad and on every podcast platform you can think of, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Anchor, you know, we're pretty much everywhere you would expect to find a podcast. And if you like the art I do for our shows, the illustrations and animations I make, or just art I make in general, you can find that stuff on my Instagram at Artworks. All right. But as for me, I'm Colton. You can find me on Twitter at SniperKing323. I also host and produce a few of my own podcasts as well outside of Manga Mavericks, which you can find links to over on my personal blog at coltoncorner.wordpress.com. Click on the uh, on the podcast page and uh, you'll get a list of all my podcasts, such as uh, One Podcast Prevails, a Detective Conan slash Case Close podcast, uh, Another Day, Another Adventure, a uh, Dragon Ball podcast I do with our good friend Sakaki. And uh, just just a bunch of other things that uh, I won't waste your time listing literally all of because that's that's why I have my personal blog again, coltacorner.wordpress.com. You can find all my other podcasts there. Uh, as for Manga Mavericks, you can find every episode at mangamavericks.com. That's where we post every episode first, unless you're a patron of ours at patreon.com slash manga mavericks, where at the $2 tier, you'll have access to select episodes of the podcast uh, before we put them up on our main feed. Uh, basically, if we happen to have an episode of the podcast edited before it's supposed to go up on our main feed, we'll put it up on our Patreon first. Uh, admittedly, that also really depends on our schedule and what we have ready and everything. So basically, if you want more reliable content, you really want to sign up for our $5 tier, uh, where at that tier, you'll get a, a new bonus podcast at the end of every month for patrons only. We mentioned it all throughout this episode, but you can listen to our latest Shonen Jump retrospective for 2021. We basically get together with our good friend Maxi Bernard of Friendship Ever Victory uh, to talk about the past year of Shonen Jump. It's kind of an annual tradition at this point. Um, it's also annual tradition to not just record a huge retrospective on Shonen Jump, but to also make it available for as low as a dollar for new and old patrons as a, as a thank you for following us over the past year on Patreon and supporting us. Um, so yeah, for just as low as a dollar, you can listen to us talk about Shonen Jump for over three hours, almost as long as this podcast, basically. Uh, if you're not tired of over three hour long podcasts yet, we have a few over on our Patreon. Again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks it's really the best way for you guys to support us and everything we do here on the show and yeah anything you're able to give helps uh you know it helps us keep the lights on uh helps us keep up uh not just the podcast but the website up as well 
basically everything we get on our Patreon uh, from you guys, we put back into the podcast, uh, whether it's keeping up the site and podcast, uh, materials for the show, everything. So yeah, again, patreon.com slash manga mavericks. Uh, that's the best way for you guys to support us. As for everything like social media wise, uh, you can follow us on Twitter at manga underscore mavericks or on Tumblr at manga mavericks.tumblr.com for all the latest updates on the podcast. Subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash manga mavericks uh, where we upload uh, different excerpts of the podcast and even some exclusive content every once in a while. Again, that's at youtube.com slash manga mavericks. Subscribe. Uh, email us anything at manga mavericks at gmail.com. What were some of your favorite moments from manga over the year 2021? If you have any favorites you want to mention or you just want to like email us about whatever manga you're reading, manga in general, uh, anything about the podcast, you know, email us again at mangamavericks at gmail.com and we'll read it on the show. We love getting emails from you guys. Um, but the most important thing is that you subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, we're, we're on a bunch of different platforms on this point, but especially on Apple Podcasts, uh, if you leave us a rating and a review, it really helps the visibility of our show. And we just love getting feedback from you guys in general because we want to use that feedback, positive or negative, to uh, help make the show that much better. Um, but yeah, that's going to be about it for this episode of the podcast. This has been episode 188 of the Manga Mavericks podcast. We'll see you guys next time for episode 189. Bye, guys. Sayonara. Sayonara.